Welcome back to the Modern Cop Podcast. Joining me today uh, from the Deep South, I got BC Sanders with me. He's going to He's going to educate us a little bit because he, he knows a little bit about a little bit uh, in the uh, the world of gangs, narcs, uh, homicide, and, uh, of course, my dear friends and uh, and uh, confidants and patrol there. I miss you guys. Uh, I, had, I had a detective, BC, call me out on it the other day. She was like, you miss the road. And I said, yeah, I think you're right. But... We'll get to that. I, I can always go back to the road. I'm still kind of cutting my teeth in the uh, in the detective world. But BC, how's things, man? It's one. They're wonderful, man. Wonderful. Good, good. Appreciate you joining me, especially last minute. This was uh, BC and I talked about him coming on the show today uh, about 12 hours ago, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. Uh, and here we are. So we'll just uh, we'll just get right into it, man. I ask these icebreaker questions to everybody, so uh, you're you're not going to get away from them. Uh, you can have a drink with anybody, living or dead. Who is it, and what are you drinking? <laughs> All right, so uh, it it won't be alcohol. Uh, I actually I don't drink. Uh, never been drunk. Um, I'm a big coffee drinker, so I'm going to stick with coffee on this. Black coffee, no cream, no sugar. Um, and I would I would say a few people. Uh, if I've got to nail down somebody, I'd probably say Bass Reeves, who is like the baddest cop ever. So a lot of people out there would be like, I don't know who Bass Reeves is. Feel free to Google it, read it in uh, Skill Set Magazine, but he's historically pound for pound uh the baddest cop that's ever been around right into the 1800s he's actually born into slavery fled uh the arkansas area into oklahoma which then was in the state uh survived living among uh citizens out there learned their language came back to arkansas after emancipation and became a deputy u.s marshal and then tracked down some of the most violent fugitives back then got into scores of shootings survived Two or three deadly shootings have been shot himself. Uh, I mean, just cr- crazy history that a lot of cops don't know about. But I'd say Bass Reeves, um, a coffee talk with, with Bass, and a lot of questions. Um, and things like, I mean, he was one of the first probably documented uses of dis- disguises. He would, he would get fugitive warrants going to town and wear like a disguise like he was older than he actually was. He would change his gait. He would, you know, walk with a limp, you know, hunched over, and then just do his do his freaking recon, start talking to citizens, get a lead on a fugitive, and the next thing you know, he's snatched them up by their neck and put them in handcuffs. So there, there are two or three uh, books out there um, on Bastries, but you start digging into his history, man, it's it's pretty impressive. I think I'm going to have to do an episode every now and then. I do uh, I call it history time. I think I'm going to have to do a history mm-hmm. time episode on Bass Reeves, man. Uh, the the OG of UC work, yeah, yeah, and and like I said, I mean, the, when you go back and look at his history, he and he couldn't read or write, so he would get the warrants and he would memorize like the letters on there, so he would know those names uh, were attached to certain faces, um, and he had a lot of informants. So he would go into towns and develop informants and pay people and get the info that he needed. Uh, and I don't want to give away too much because then once people start reading about, it, they're like, it, it'll blow your mind why. We don't know as much about him. Now, in the Arkansas area and, and those states, from what I've been told, citizens have always talked about him. Like it's like an oral history handed down. And um, there's a gun, there's a book called uh, Black Gun, Silver Star. And that is an entire in-depth read of Bass Reeves, including uh, newspaper articles about his arrest back then and his, and his like 
50, 60 years of law enforcement. It's it's crazy. W.E.B. Fairbairn's another one, man. Okay. Uh, yeah, so uh, kind of given he's given a lot of credit for creating the first SWAT team in the Shanghai Municipal Police back in the 30s. So I'll leave it at that, but that that's another badass in the police work. Yeah, that was uh, uh, W.E.B. Fairbairn would have been like a – what a British constable or, mm-hmm. or something along those lines back when it was still a, a colony. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. to, to see, you know, I think everybody thinks about SWAT and tactical operations as like a, you know, sixties, seventies, you know, really right. big in, into the eighties uh, and, and, uh, and into what it is today. But there were dudes back in the thirties, man, it, the, the first, you know, first group of guys here and abroad, and they were securing automatic weapons and, and modifying shotguns and, and, you know, mm-hmm. having freaking machine, you know, belt fed and, and magazine fed machine guns. And they were armoring standard automobiles, like just doing their own yeah. thing. It's not like evil didn't exist in the 1930s, you know? Yeah. <laughs> not like and, there and ballistic sh- shield. And yeah. Ballistic I mean, they shields, had ballistic yeah. shield. Yeah. Uh, they would stack up. They, you know, he and, and some others created like shoot houses and they would play records of like recordings of women screaming and men screaming and firecrackers going off, you know, and it was like shoot, no shoot scenarios. Um, and, and then their fugitive retrievals where they would dress in plain clothes and work informants and just, you know, same thing. It's just, and, and then he goes on to, to train OSS and SOE spies during World War II on, you know, hand, hand to hand, uh, arrest techniques, which then evolve into actual uh, lethal encounters with, with weapons and hands and knives and stuff. So a lot of history on him, a lot of books written on him. Uh, but when you go back and study when he was with Shanghai police and the riots that they dealt with and how he, he and his lab were some of the first people to put um, markings of SMPs, Shanghai Municipal Police, on the actual projectiles they were shooting. So when citizens were, were claiming that they had been shot during the riots, and saying that the police had shot them, they would retrieve the projectiles and say, well, no, it doesn't have our stamp on it. Therefore, we didn't shoot you. It's crazy uh, to think that they, they did that that back then because it was so uh, so prevalent. You know, the, the riots that they were having, uh, opium dens, and I think it was the, the Green Gang at that time that was running a lot of uh, early stages of heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, but crazy, like you said, we think like that's a – set uh, or you know 1970s invention of these these SWAT teams when really you go back and you're like and they were doing it back then you know very similar to what was created in the 70s out in LA and other cities and I uh, I uh, uh, I commend you for not drinking alcohol uh, younger <laughs> younger me would tell you uh, not to worry being drunk sucks uh, uh, it, it's one of those things that seems to be fun at the time and then later on, not so, uh, not yeah. so much fun. Uh, me now in my thirties, uh, I'm like one glass of whiskey, maybe two <laughs> per week. Um, and, yeah. uh, and that's about the extent of it. You're so, bl- Go ahead. Yeah. I would say, let, let me, I should have prefaced this. Um, people get like, get kind of not upset, but they think that I'm judging them when I say, Oh yeah. Like I don't like if I'm going to at a social gathering or something, someone offers me a beer, they want to talk about, it, I'm like, Oh yeah, I don't, I don't drink, but I grew up around beer. My dad delivered beer. Like all I knew was Schlitz, Coors, Old Milwaukee. You know, all my friends drank. I, but for me personally, I just I never got into it. And, and we can talk later about music and straight edge and all that. But it just wasn't my thing. And I, I know I don't judge people about it uh, or look down on them. It's just 
I never, I never got into it. I got, I got plenty of other problems, but, but I just never got into alcohol. <laughs> That's when I was going through my background. Um, I got grilled on, you know, the question of when was the last time you smoked marijuana? I'm like, I've never smoked marijuana. And, uh, short of the background investigator being like, no BS. Uh, but I think she asked <laughs> yeah. me that question probably like seven to 10 times different ways. And I'm like, I, <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. I finally looked at her. I was like, I don't know what you're trying to get at, but I maintain I have never smoked marijuana. Yeah. She's like, you're like a unicorn. I'm like, no, I just kind of always knew I wanted yeah. to be a cop. So I wasn't going to yeah. go down that path. Um, but yeah, uh, they thought the same thing with alcohol for me. They kept on it. They were like, oh, well, you were a sergeant in the army. No, you had to drink. I was like, well, I didn't drink and I, I haven't been drunk before. I don't. You know, and they just kept harping like we all have skeletons in the closet. I'm like, yeah, but my, mine are not alcohol yeah. related. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it, just, it was kind of weird. But but then again, I mean, I, I think about it, too. Like, I don't really know too many people that didn't drink alcohol. I still know a few people that didn't smoke weed. But man, a lot like the younger generations, as you know, you you see the applicants now that maybe are in their early 20s, you know, for police work. And they have smoked weed. They've been smoking weed since they were like 15 or 16, right. you know. It's the same as like alcohol. Like a lot of people who drink as adults probably started drinking when they were teenagers. Yeah. So so weed weed or, or cannabis, whatever you want to call it, is now kind of the equivalent of alcohol. You, you know what I mean? Like I think all departments are probably going to have to reevaluate how marijuana is looked at for that reason. It's just so common now. Well, and I just saw something on, was it for uh, Thursday or Friday? that uh, uh, there's a push now to legalize it at the federal level, which will indeed change the police applicant process. Because, uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean, you're right, dude. Like, you, you'd have people dropped who would otherwise be or, or probably become really good cops uh, who, who had the drive and the desire and they had the, the dream to be a police officer, but they smoked m- weed more than 10 times in the last right. number of years. And they're like, well, yeah, yeah, I was in high school and college. So, and again, like, like you said, right. just that same reaction to, uh, you know, maybe the generation that came before me, uh, would have with like, well, yeah, I drank alcohol when I was under 21. Like I was in college. I, mm-hmm. uh, you know, went to high school parties, sort of all these things that are illegal, but maybe like societally, I don't know if I want to say it's accepted in society, but it's understood to be a part of, of the American experience. Oh, if you will. oh it's a hundred, it's a hundred percent acceptable. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like when I, when I was a kid and I didn't drink, uh, I had people who were like, it's, it's okay. You can drink a beer here. You know, like my dad was that way. He's like, you can drink a beer. I'm like, nah, I'm good. I don't like, I drank it when I was a little kid, like eight or nine, he'd give me beer. You know, because he was a bachelor, so he didn't care. Right. Yeah, you come in, you come in from playing. It's like you drink tap water, or there's a beer in the refrigerator. It's like, yeah, get you a couple, couple swigs of Coors Light or whatever. Like I never got drunk. But it was like it wasn't. It was not. It was like a, a Coke or a Pepsi or something to right. it. Right. As kids, to myself, my older brother. But but yeah, it, it alcohol is completely acceptable for high schoolers, spring break, all this, this rite of passage, the military, same thing, like. That's for my background. They they thought that was that I was somehow lying, and I wanted to be like, well, if it's so prevalent, why would I lie about it? <laughs> you know, I'm mean? like, oh, I'm going to double down and keep lying that I don't drink alcohol. I'm I'm trying. I'm being honest with you. And I'm trying to explain to you. I don't. It's just not my thing. Like you know, move on. Like, it, it, like I said, weed will be the same way now. Like 20 years from now, people 
we'll look back and go, wow, it's crazy how, you know, uh, certain generations looked at marijuana before. It's like, mm-hmm. well, people didn't know it was the unknown. Now it becomes prevalent and research and that sort of thing. But you got to be careful too, because most of your homicides out there are over weed deals and not, you know, like 12 kilos of cocaine or something. It's right. like a QP of weed. Yeah. Stems, Someone didn't give up the weed. Seeds, they get right? smoked, man. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's like when I, when I tell like, um, people who are, are getting into the drug world and they're selling and stuff and they don't understand what they're getting into. It's like, you don't get it. You know, you're, you're going to be a target. You're selling weed out here and you don't carry a gun. You're not part of a gang, but you're going to try and sell to someone who is, they're going to read you as a soft target and you're going to have a gun in your face. If you don't give it up fast enough, they'll, they'll make you give it up. You know, and many, many a person has been shot in the leg to give up weed and you hit that for more artery and they just bleed out. And you find out later, it's like, all over weed all over a you know, quarter pound or half pound or something a weed that someone didn't want to give up which is bizarre but i mean that it that's like one of those things that when people talk about weed being harmless that's my only thing is like you just you got to look at some of the side effects of that that violence that level of people doing still doing street deals and stuff where you know it, yeah. it could be a, it could be a lot different you know yeah so we've got a we've got a cop out here uh, in, in the, uh, West Valley here, West of Phoenix, uh, Will White, uh, who, who will tell you his story. I'm keep trying to get him on the show. I, I need to reach back out to him, but, um, he's paralyzed from the waist down, uh, because of a, a gunfight he got into and all because somebody did not want to get caught with literally a sandwich baggie of stems and seeds mm. and, and his mm. life was forever yeah. changed. Right. Like, um, Yeah. You know, it's just it's just crazy, and we can get you know we'll we'll dive down that rabbit hole. I'll have you I'll have you drop the knowledge bombs here on that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Uh, what uh, what are some uh, some books that you're currently reading or uh, or listening to? Dude, so uh, I don't really watch TV. I watch some movies every night, but I read books. Like like I said, I don't drink alcohol, but I read books like a, like a like a person drinks beer. I guess currently I'm reading Brothers in Arms by Garrett uh, Jones, and he, he's written uh, several different books. Uh, he's a British military. This book, uh, he's actually documenting his, his days in the infantry um, being deployed into uh, Afghanistan. And I've, I've listened to him on his podcast, Veteran State of Mind, and he's just got a really cool perspective on different things. And I don't have to agree with the dude on everything, which is cool. He's, he's very open-minded. But his writing style is very impressive and i'm not downing anybody else but when he's when he's talking he's painting the picture of what life is like in an infantry unit deployed the jargon dialogue the points of view it's it's good so um and if i don't like a book i'm usually i give it about 40 pages and i put it down i gotta read something else i don't throw it away or anything i put it on my bookshelf and maybe a couple years i might have a different perspective but Mm -hmm. so i'm reading that and then i'm reading uh it's fiction it's an old book from like the nineties, Get Shorty by uh Elmore Leonard. And that was recommended to me. I'd seen the movie. I forgot that it was a movie years ago. But Joshua Hood, who's actually a writer, he writes um like if you're familiar with Robert Ludlum's uh Jason Bourne series. Yeah. And he's got his yeah, own so, he's got his own series with a war- warning order, and I forget what his other book is. Yeah, yeah. Um you're exactly right. So he like some of his stuff um that he's doing now with the treadstone series so it's like the treadstone um 
uh, Resurrection, I think, mm-hmm. is one of them. And then he's got a, a current one out. But he and I chatted quite a bit, and he was like, because I'm, I'm a snob when it comes to books, like fiction. I'm like, dude, I really want to read literature. You know, I don't. When I read fiction, I got to get something out of it. And he told me he's like, read, get shorty. You'll love it because you'll love the characters, the the dialogue. Like that's that's my thing. Like I got a like I'm a big Faulkner, William Faulkner, Tony Morrison, Carson McCullers. Like I like old old literature if I'm going to read fiction. But most of the stuff I read is nonfiction. So like I just finished uh, Beirut Rules okay. about um, yeah terrorism in like the 80s, late 70s, 80s in Beirut and Lebanon. And, uh, Fred Burton wrote it. Who's a diplomatic, uh, security services agent for, uh, I think 20, 25 years, but he's like one of the first gang experts to really work that, that area and some of those investigations. But when you talk about a book that gets in depth and I'm the type that I write and highlight and put post-it notes in there and stuff, just because it, it's fascinating to me. And that book is probably one of the most impressive I've read. I don't know, maybe like the last two or three years. If you want to know about like how terrorism operates, how it, how uh, things went on that for my, you know, generation of 30s, 40 year old Americans, we saw it on the news as little kids, but I, I know I couldn't grasp it at the time. And I go back and read it, you know, read that book. I'm like, it was, there was a lot of craziness going on then that people could kind of predict this is only going to get worse and we're going to have to address it you know, head on with, with different either military units or uh, investigative units. But I would highly recommend that. Favorite rules. All right. Yeah, it's it's on and my on my to read list. I've been following Fred on Instagram here for a little bit and yeah. I had a had another DSS retired DSS agent, Cody Perrin, on a few weeks back and um I've been have been reading his book, Agents Unknown, but but that Beirut rules, man, kinda learning about almost kind of the nexus uh, of Middle Eastern terrorism, right? With with how mm-hmm. it how it really flourished in in the eighties and and you know the late seventies mm-hmm. into the eighties. So that that's a super interesting read. Yeah, I, and and I've got about four bookshelves in my office at home that are you know from ceiling to floor uh, full of books, twenty five years worth of reading. So the last one I recommend is The Black Hand. Uh, by Stephen uh, Talty, I guess how you pronounce the last name, T-A-L-T-Y. But it's actually on one of the first gang units in the U.S. Uh, it's in New York, turn of the century in the early 1900s. Uh, Joe Petrosino is like one of the first New York cops that was bilingual, spoke Italian and English. Uh, but he ends up establishing a unit to go after the Black Hand, which was uh, uh, basically like the beginnings of like the Mafia so to speak, but they were doing kidnappings and extortion and they established a plain clothes unit uh, called the Italian squad in the NYPD. And that book goes in depth with like how they started going after that organization. And I, I won't give it away, but I mean, you can read all the reviews and stuff, but that book phenomenal. I, uh, I'm a huge fan of reading, man. That's why I always ask that question. It, it helps me add to uh, my, my need to read list and uh, hopefully <laughs> Hopefully the listeners get something out of it too. I'm going to need to get a freaking Barnes and Noble membership again, man. I'm going to be spending so much, so much money. <laughs> so I'll post like, uh, on stories, Instagram stories, I'll post pictures, just random pictures. A lot of times of books and I buy used books a lot because they're like a dollar or two or whatever. And they're usually from, uh, old libraries. So people 
kind of busted me out. Like, man, you're stealing books from the library. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm buying them used, you know, like if I don't buy it, someone throws it away. And like, that's to me, I can't stand to see a book get thrown away. So I buy, I'll buy a lot of used books um, just for that reason. Or like, if you recommend something and I can't find it, like as a, as a current copy of something, then I start digging and I'll find it somewhere. Like I've, I've found copies in thrift stores and stuff. Uh, a collection of Stephen King short stories, the Bachman books where, he wrote a short story called Rage about a kid that basically becomes an active shooter. And at the time, uh, years ago, Stephen King pulled it from being published because of that, because he didn't want to influence anyone or, or, or cause it or contribute more to that problem. You know, now it's probably a, a decade ago. So I'd always been told, hey, if you ever get your hands on these Stephen King short stories or these novellas, you'll, you'll enjoy them just for, for his writing, you know. And lo and behold, I found a copy for like a, a dollar in a thrift store and now everybody's like, man, you don't understand what you've got there. You know, so you can go back and read the story and it's, it's pretty impressive. Uh, his writing and to be able to predict something like that in the late seventies, uh, early eighties. But either way, I got off track. Goal is read books. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In, in short, just, just open <laughs> in a short, book and read, read it. Books. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you, you got to go get your oil changed, read a book. You got to get on an airplane, and read a book. That's like, Oh yeah. That, that's, that's where it all, I mean, started for me is uh, uh, you get onto an airplane and they tell you to put your electronics away, but they don't say a damn thing about books. Like, right. So, yeah. I, yeah. You know, I flew a lot as a kid back and forth between here in California and, and would always just keep a book on me because I never had to worry about it. And my parents liked it because it kept me quiet. So, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that, the, the, for me, I probably, I had a, some trouble growing up reading. But my thing now is I, I would much rather sit down and read a book and just block everything out and i can actually absorb it like i said i, I do a lot of note taking because then i can retain a lot of the information better or with you know instagram and and emails and stuff you you can write stuff and and email the author or make you know contacts with the author ask them direct questions like oh wow you know in this chapter you talked about this but is there more to it oh yeah there is more to it. and you can have a dialogue like that i'm a nerd like that i don't care like i'll tell people send them messages like your book was phenomenal I love this. Can I learn more about this? Or are you working on anything, you know, future, future, um, works and stuff. So like with Fred Burton, nicest guy in the world and same thing like that. Like he'll go out of his way to, to talk to you or answer questions and stuff. He's just a nice, humble guy, but a wealth of knowledge and, and had a great career. So. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, let's roll right into the next one. What is a uh, conspiracy theory that you believe to be true? <laughs> so, uh, I don't, I don't buy into a lot of conspiracy theories, but I will say through the years, the one thing that I don't really talk about with people, but maybe now it's a little more acceptable is just UFOs in general. You know, like when I was a kid, it was all area 51 and the government's covering everything up. And, uh, then you kind of learn like, uh, probably what they were doing was covering up like stealth technology. Right. And yeah. Stealth bomber sure does look like a lot of UFO, like boomerang shaped UFO or whatever. But, uh, I would just probably say just the idea in general of uh, the government as an entity having knowledge about alien life form that they have it. And now, you know, there are YouTube videos and stuff of the uh, flying Tic Tac, you know, that's over the ocean. Right. I think Joe Rogan interviewed, you know, that was like in 2014. So uh, I would probably say for me, I just because I, I want to know, like, is there life? Do In other words, do we know as a government or you know, as humanity, like that there's aliens that exist, have they visited us and just kind of, what do we know? And, uh, just the nerd in me, like wants to know everything about it. 
Yeah. In general. So I, I'm not like that controversial. It would just be more like nerd facts of UFOs. Well, and the, the law of averages would say that there's no way that we're it as far as the entirety right. of the cosmos. But like you talk about, man, that, yeah. that, that B2 spirit bomber, uh, when it's dark outside yeah. and it's flying overhead just with some lights on, like, you could be like, ah, yeah. I, I, I could see where you'd get. There's even, there was like a project in the 50s, I think. And it's like a jet powered aircraft that is in the shape of a flying saucer. <laughs> right, and right, e- yeah. everything back, you know, it was all, everything back then was, was just chrome or, you know, it, was, uh, it wasn't painted. Like we didn't put paint on aircraft and it was shiny. And so, yeah, it's reflecting the ground lights from Las Vegas. It's got its landing lights or whatever the case may be. Right. But yeah, you're sitting out there in the middle of the night in the desert. Uh, it's 118 <laughs> yeah. degrees outside and you've been <laughs> frying your brain all day long and you look up and you're like, oh my God, it's a flying saucer. You're like, yes, yeah. it is, but it's it's got like a human in it. Uh, but then that leads yeah. me to the question of like, well, where did we get this design from? So now I'm, I'm right. Uh, I'm right there yeah. with you, man. Yeah, the yeah, aliens. Yeah. The aliens for me are a big question mark. There, there's got to be more information than we're given. Yeah, and here's the burning question too. Uh, I was sitting out, I don't know, maybe four or five months ago, thinking about this, and looked up and saw a plane flying. They've got lights, you know. With the descriptions that you know for twenty twenty five years are like, oh, people look in the sky and see these crafts with lights, and therefore it's a UFO because it's it's whatever saucer shaped. Then I got to thinking, because this is what I do when I don't have anything to do, why would a UFO from another galaxy or another planet or whatever fly to potentially a hostile planet, fly within our atmosphere where we could see them, their technology would have to be so great they would realize that, but then they're going to have regular standard lights on their own vehicles to draw attention? You know what I mean? So then my logic is like, well, if they got lights, it's because they don't want, you know, it's, it's a regular human aircraft because we don't want to collide in the air and then of course my brain starts saying hmm or maybe they're just programming us or probing us to go let's see how they react to news stories like you know uh joe rogan's 2014 uh pilot who sees the tic tac over the u.s or over the ocean it's like well nobody cared nobody freaked out it's not war of the worlds we didn't burn down the cities so maybe they're just a highly you know trained reconnaissance unit it's like yeah, these humans seem to be a little more accepting of us now. You know yeah. what I mean? Who knows? Yeah, they won't. Uh, they won't immediately try to shoot us out of the sky. <laughs> right, right. As, as long as we don't act like the assholes from Mars attacks, we should be okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Just kind of land, have a normal conversation with us, like that movie Paul or whatever. It yeah. Was, exactly. Like, yeah. Hey, we're, we're good. We're good to go. And don't come at me being like, it's probing time because nobody's going to win yeah. in that fight. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. We'll probably fight to the death on that. <laughs> well, uh, BC, you get a time machine to go back 10 years or forward 10 years for a 30-minute conversation with yourself. Which direction are you going? All right. The greedy side would say go back just to give some stock tips to my old self. Oh, my man. I'm right there with in, but, <laughs> but, but, in, but the the interesting part for me would be to go forward 10 years and to talk about, talk to my future self and to be like, don't forget about this stuff, this stuff, this stuff, because 10 years from now I should be writing novels and, and doing uh, a lot more with teaching, you know, in, in different areas. So that's the one thing like, I, I'm, I would want to remember, Hey, remember how all this stuff operates or, or works 
and don't forget it. Don't forget those small details like that, uh, which is kind of a, a lame answer maybe or a stupid answer. But but my logic being that 10 years from now, I'm going to forget a lot of, of stuff that I know now that I may depend on or want to depend on. Yeah, man. No, I'm, I, I like it. I mean, you go you go 10 years backward and yeah, it's like, hey, you know how you can pay 25 Bitcoin for a Domino's pizza? <laughs> You should probably hang on to the Bitcoin, but to go forward and be like, okay, was what I've done thus far? Am I on the right track? Am I, is there something that I need? You yeah. know, my future self would, would want to take the opportunity to tell me, like, Hey, when you go back, like you said, Hey, when you go back, don't forget this, this, and this, or do these things. So yeah, no, it's, it's one of those, uh, uh, I had a buddy of mine drop that question on me. Um, and, uh, and so and I was stumped on it, so now I got to drop it on all my guests and, yeah. Uh, yeah. and watch watch them argue with themselves. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, because then you start you, like then then you start thinking all the questions. Well, okay, well, what would all that entail? You know, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and and because I started teaching a lot of my gang stuff and, and investigative techniques ten years ago, I can still go back and look at notes and stuff and go, okay, yeah, um, and some stuff I'd forget. But to go forward another ten years, uh, it's gonna be. You know, I'm going to get a lot older, obviously, in 10 years. So I want to hang on to a lot of information and find, you know, like the small details that um, probably a lot of people are going to want to learn from just in general, those techniques. Yeah. I'd like to know if I still have hair. That's that's something, you know, go 10 years into the future and see if that's still a thing. So <laughs> whether, they've cured, whether they've cured baldness or not. Exactly. Know. Exactly. Um, all right. Well, I appreciate you, uh, uh, breaking the ice with me there for a little bit. Um, I kind of want to start chronologically, man, cause you, you grew up in the eighties, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. and you grew up in that, that sort of counterculture, uh, punk rock, uh, attitude, uh, you know, you rocking mm-hmm. out to suicidal tendencies and some of those other bands <laughs> yeah. and, and, yeah. uh, and you and I had talked a, a little bit before I hit the record button and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and now being a cop, in the, at least in the past few years, being a cop is almost the counterculture. It's not, we're not the same cops from like 1990, right? We are, right. We are, it's a vastly different crew, but, but walk us through, if you will, man, just, just growing up in the eighties and, and kind of what life was like for you and, and what led you ultimately you ended up in the, in the army. Um, uh, give us, give us kind of a glimpse into, uh, into your, your, uh, your youth there. Yeah. So for me, <clears throat> Mid 1980s, 85, 86, 87. I'm like 10, 11, 12 years old around that time frame. Uh, and that's when I got into skateboarding. And I was in the South. So the stereotype back then was you had a lot of guys with mullets driving, you know, uh, Camaros and pickup trucks that didn't like skaters. They didn't like Mohawks. Mohawks and, and jacked up haircuts were like, un, you know, unseen back then until we started doing stuff. So for me, it was like minor threats, suicidal tendencies, dead Kennedys. You know, I started getting like JFA, like some of these like early uh, punk rock bands that, that you really had to seek out finding the records and the tapes. And so that just got me into it. I had a, a really cool bunch of uh, friends um, and an older brother that got me into it. And so I was able to go to shows when I was 12, 13 years old and see bands play. But at the same time, the opposite or, or the opposing force to that was that stereotype police officer who, when we would have encounters, usually was very negative. It, I mean, it was, and I'm not going to get into all the language, but calling us names or assuming that we were doing something wrong. And in reality, we were pretty good kids. 
you know, we really didn't like uh, getting in trouble. We didn't like victimizing people. Um, so all we want to do is skate and listen to music and kind of be left alone. To flash forward to uh, getting into high school and then starting to get into a lot of like what's called New York hardcore. So it's like bands like Judge, Youth of the Day, Gorilla Biscuits, um, even some of the older like Seven Seconds, like just the positive bands, you know, from all over the U.S. where I was really starting to say, okay, I'm getting older. What do I want to do? I want to live a life that actually matters. And I, I don't have any kind of desire to be in a band. So what, what can I do basically that I can enjoy but can also change society or change my local scene, so to speak? Because punk rock, when I was in it as a kid, that was the message. The message was, was coming out of like Washington, D.C. bands and stuff uh, like, like Marginal Man and um, Fugazi and all these bands. It was like change your scene. Like if, if we're not smashing bottles out there and getting drunk and passing out in the street, like that's not what real punk rock is. It's assessing your area and just trying to help people and try to change that image. So that's what it was. So once I got uh, you know 17 years old and, and decided, hey, I'm joining the Army, same thing like I said earlier about not drinking. That was just me personally. But when I got into the Army, I still listened to hardcore. I got into a lot of ska music then and swing. But, I mean, when I'm in the barracks, I was blasting anything, you know, from Warzone to the toasters. So I just always stuck with music. It was always important to me. But also led that path that was also counter to what, uh, like it wasn't normal for a punk rocker to join the army at that time. You know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't nor it definitely wasn't normal to become a cop. So there were certain people I would tell, Hey, I'm kind of thinking about, I want to become a cop. And there were some people I never said that to. But then when I eventually got out of the army, went to college, got a degree in psychology, uh, and joined the police department, I kept it quiet on patrol. I wasn't running around telling people I still listen to punk rock and go to shows and all that. That was just my own thing. I kept it myself. I wanted to prove to everybody I'm here to be a cop. And when I say a cop, like I, I want to go out there and do cop work. I want to find people with guns. I want to work gangs. I want, you know, I want to have an effect on that beat or that area of operation that I work in. And then eventually, you know, it, it comes out through plain clothes assignments and stuff that I'm wearing like band t-shirts and other cops are like, Oh, like, like I had an FBI agent walk into a room when I'm wearing a seven seconds, walk together, rock together shirt. And, and right off the bat, he's like, what do you know about that shirt? And I was messing with him. I'm like, more importantly, what the hell do you know about it? You know? <laughs> and we sat there and talked music for 20 minutes and everybody was like, what are you, what are y'all talking about? We're talking about some of the greatest bands ever, you know? So once I, like you said, that counterculture of it, Right now, there's a huge presence of cops doing really good work, like important work, human trafficking, you know, drug cartels, gangs, whatever. I mean, like a, a huge spectrum of police work. And they all grew up very similar to me, either skateboarding and listening to punk rock or hardcore. And then they join a police department and they're committed to it. They, they really are trying to change that area and make life a little bit better for their area of operation. And on top of that, still go to shows and still talk to bands. You know, that's the great part about like I can go see my favorite bands and talk to the bands afterwards and, and talk about real life and what's going on. And it's not this rock star mentality or this idea that the fans are somehow owe them something. You know, it's it's the opposite. Like often in, in the punk rock and hardcore scene, the bands feel like they owe the, the fans something because the fans have been supporting them for so long. 
So it is, it's a huge, it's a huge movement and it is almost like the counterculture. There are a lot of young people in the scene that absolutely hate cops and they have no reason to understand why other than what is kind of being told to them, but their personal encounters with the police may not have been negative. Cause like you said earlier, we're not the cops from 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. Definitely not. You know, I mean, it's at least like my experience, you, you've got a lot of young cops that are doing yoga that are, you know, into self-awareness that are reading philosophy that are you know into stoicism that are really trying to be better people and better police officers to serve the community. It's not a bunch of, you know, uh, beefed up steroid dudes running around slamming people in the middle of the street like it was 1985. You know, right. it's, with, it's a with flat top haircuts and uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like high fiving one another, like yeah, we got your drugs. Or it's like no, like those those days are gone. And and most people, if they're honest about their encounters with police, are probably more positive than negative. And I've had negative encounters. Now I've had a damn pistol put to my head, uh, but that was all because I matched a suspect description. And, and I stayed calm. I did exactly what was told of me. And then the officer afterwards explained the actions. And I walked away understanding that if the officer just told me to F off, they don't owe me any, you know, uh, reason. And then they leave. Yeah. I would have felt, I would have been like, Oh, that's a power trip and cop, you know, Robocop, whatever. But she explained everything to me. I'm like, no, nah, if I were the suspect and you would have had to drop on me, that's good. Like, but I'm not the suspect. You know who I am. You got my name, my information, all that. And then I survived and I, I went home and that was before I became a cop. So I knew it was like, okay, I, I followed commands, even though I had negative experiences before that, in that moment, I was like, I need to just listen to what she's saying. Cause I don't like that. I don't like that barrel, that pistol at my, at my side of my head, mm-hmm. you know? but it was one of those things that like, I, I'd also had positive encounters with the police when I was younger and had a cop say, no, these kids are cool because we skated. So it's like one of those things like, okay, it comes down to the individual. So if an individual is going to, is going to be true to, to cop work and go out there and, and work every day to, to make the community better. That's what it's about. You're going to have the outliers. You're going to have cops that break the rules that are, you know, more aggressive or that sort of thing. And they're few and far between. And we're probably living in the era right now that has the least amount of, complaints generated from citizens you know what i mean like it's it's not 1985 the way it was like it's just it's a completely different um environment and that's why i've stayed in it as long as i have yeah had i joined the police department it been like what i thought maybe it was going to be a bunch of just good old boys out there doing stupid stuff i would have been like the serpico of my department i would have been pushing to be like put me in internal affairs like these are corrupt cops we're going to take them down but it was the opposite it was like Every now and then you run into a power power tripping RoboCop, but usually they would resign or get jammed up within their first year or two or maybe three, and they were gone. You know, my my experience was really intelligent, motive like self motivated cops. That when we went out on calls and went to and went to dispatches of shootings and violence and all that and working gangs, I was always impressed and and what I say spoiled in police work because I worked with some of the best you know, on different assignments, it was like, we're getting it right. And we're seeing the result because of this, because everybody's motivated. We're not, we're, you know, I guess the common theme is like a lot of cops think they're intelligent, they're problem solvers. And they don't, they don't necessarily have to come from that counterculture of punk rock, the question, Hey, what are our strategies? Are we doing, 
the best for the community right now. But that that's what I started out doing. I was always questioning, do I need to write this ticket at, you know, two o'clock in the morning to this person who's driving without a seatbelt? Well, no, I don't because inside of a five minute in- encounter with them, I just realized they're working two jobs and this is going to be money out of their pocket. And really at the end of the day, I don't want to see them die in a car crash. So I'll spend two minutes saying, Hey, this is what it's like for an officer to respond to a car crash and see a human being's head smash through a windshield. It's horrible. And then you got to go and notify the family about that. Or can you just please wear your seatbelt? And citizens were pretty receptive to that. You know, when I was on patrol, like, well, thank you. I never thought about that. I thought it was just a way to make money for the municipality. Right. Like, no, we want you to wear the seatbelt so that you don't, one, you don't die. One, your family's not left with a loved one dead. And also it's traumatic to another human being, a cop having to go to car crash after car crash. So the idea is where the seatbelt, the, you know, the paying the fines and stuff is supposed to support that. But for me, I, the area I worked, you know, it was like when people had jobs, I was glad. Now I didn't want to take, you know, 200, $300 out of their pocket, but I would try to explain to them like, this is why I stopped you. This is what I hope, you know, when you leave here, you wear your seatbelt. And, and while I got you here, do you know anything about the shooting down the street or the stabbing or whatever the crime of the day was for that area? And so a lot of times citizens would say, well, I appreciate you not writing me a ticket. By the way, check out that corner store, you know, so-and-so's hanging out there and there, you know, my grandkids told me that he's the one causing problems or he's the one in a gang or whatever it is, just little tidbits of, of info. And then that, that citizen leaves the encounter feeling better. And, and I can actually go and work stuff that I care about, not harassing people in traffic stops. So I'm not, I'm not down on anybody that has to do that. I'm just saying for my area, my beat that we had very big problems with gangs, drug dealers, violence in the street, not necessarily a lot of tra- car crashes where you know what i mean so Mm -hmm. my goal was to to stop a lot of cars not write a lot of tickets but get information and build almost like a network of citizens that would know who i was and they would see me and be like oh yeah you gave me that that warning the other day but check this out you know you need to check out this house i think they're running girls out of there or whatever it is you know it's that kind of just always trying to get info to make my beat better not necessarily write a bunch of tickets kind of thing yeah yeah, and, and like you said, man, it's nothing against the motors or the, the people who are out there in a certain specialty assignment or they're working a detail and, and the 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 whole point of their existence that given day at work is to get out there and, and write those tickets. I was always a fan of the uh, of the written warning, like, hey, mm-hmm. you know, uh, well, I, I had a, a rule and I still do. I just I mean, I don't I'm a detective. I don't pull traffic anymore, but uh, mm-hmm. um that if you're going to chew somebody's ass out, you don't also cut paper on them. Um, right. That was just sort of the, yeah. the rule that, and, and I don't remember who taught me that one. Um, but uh, the other side of that coin is that actually a good friend of mine who has since become a motor officer told me, look, you may be the only cop that person interacts with for an entire mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. And and so don't come at them sideways because they got a headlight out. I mean, how many times do yeah. you start your car, turn everything on, and you walk around it like you're doing a pre-flight check on a 737? None of us do that. I mean, I've got a cracked mm-hmm. windshield in my car right now. Like I could get pulled over at any mm-hmm. time for that. That's a violation of Arizona state law. But like you said, mm-hmm. I mean, I think people know that like, uh, am I going to write you a ticket for a cracked windshield and then make you pay $450 for a new windshield? Like, right. I don't, you know, yeah. that doesn't seem like a very reasonable tactic to me. And in, 
in doing that, I think that you continue to grow this positive relationship. You're still doing your job, right? You can still stop somebody. Mm-hmm. You've got PC for the, the traffic stop, but you don't have to sit there and, and start like, oh, I'm going to get my stats on this one and I'm going to tick all these boxes. Like you can have a, a simple two or three minute conversation with somebody and then send them on their way. Whether or not they listen to it is a completely different story. I had one kid, the third time I pulled him over for running a stop sign, uh, I looked at him and I was like, cause he, he knew as soon as I walked, he was like, oh man, it's you. And I'm like, yeah, it is me. Yeah. This is the third time, dude. Like you're clearly not learning. I've given you these opportunities. I'm writing you a ticket. Yeah. And he was like, no, that I get it. Like I, I earned yeah. that one. So, but again, that there was accountability on his part. Um, yeah, it it does take these. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say like, when you talked about like motor units, one of the discussions we always have now is, you know, for a motor unit that, that specializes in that are often working areas where you've got a lot of deadly crashes, you know, it's a a certain curve or, or whatever part of that road for whatever reason contributes to deadly collisions. So then the idea is to write a bunch of tickets in that area. So people are aware and they don't do the same things that are causing these collisions. The, the problem I end up having is when people don't understand that. And like this <clears throat> stats you said earlier, and, and I don't know that you would see that necessarily now, but uh, 15 years ago, it was very easy for officers to go out and write a bunch of tickets and, and then feel like, well, I wrote a bunch of tickets and then something bad didn't happen on my beat or my area. So therefore, it's like a in, in their brain they're making a correlation, but it's not causation. It's it's just right, right. oh, I wrote a bunch of tickets, so no crime happened. Therefore, I reduced violent crime. You know, and it's kind of like uh, maybe you did, maybe your presence is what did it. So maybe you didn't have to write the tickets. It's just the blue lights and the constant seeing you know cars getting stopped on Main Avenue that maybe the other areas are like, all right, I'm gonna get out of here because it's hot for the next couple of hours. Maybe I don't know that they have to always write those tickets. And I mean tickets like you stop a car for a seatbelt violation, but then, like you said, you're riding a, a cracked windshield, a tag light out, you know, unsafe tires. Like you, you just kind of what we call hammering people and getting your numbers up. And at the end of the day, it's like, why would you do that? Like I said, I don't, I don't think that's the trend now. I think the trend now, sadly, is that a lot of officers are scared to even stop cars or, or even have voluntary encounters or investigative stops of people because of, worrying that something goes sideways and maybe then they make a news story or something. But, um, that, that aspect, those, the ability to be able to do a proactive stop or do a traffic stop and then pick up on indicators that go, wow, I stopped this car cause they didn't have a seatbelt on, but I can read the body language. I can read the inside of the car. I know this, this, and this, this person's probably a gang member or this person's probably got a, a weapon on them. Their body language is keying in. I need to do something more with this traffic stop than just keying in on the seatbelt, not being on, you know, this person's probably got a gun under the seat and this is why, you know, being able to articulate that stuff. I, th- I think that that that's the movement now It's not necessarily the numbers game, but more of getting back to that, knowing how to stop a car and read body language and get the people off the street. that are going to commit the violence as opposed to just writing a bunch of tickets, kind of like you're talking about. Right. There was a, there was a meme the other day. It was, I think it was a series of memes and it was like, if you see a cop wearing this type of uniform, this is what you can expect. And, and one of them was like the, the New Jersey state police, you know, with the Sam Brown belt and the, the, the the crushed like five point hat. Um, and, and all the, the, 
weirdness that comes with with New Jersey Stadies. And then it was like, uh, you know, if, if they're wearing the uh, the Smokey the Bear cover uh, and aviators and they have a mustache, you're getting a ticket. And then it, and then it was like my, my patrol uniform, which is an outer carrier. And uh, it said like an excessively rolled bill of your baseball cap, and it's like most likely to <laughs> most likely to give you warnings or something along Warn- those lines. So, that's me. <laughs> right? Yeah, we, we we have those like our own little uh, stereotypes within the culture, right? Like we know this this type of cop or that type of cop or agency or whatever. Right. Uh, it, it, I mean, we probably you know bash on one another worse. Worse than anybody else. Oh, absolutely. Be a base off of that. Yeah. yeah. So you uh, you ended up going into uh, into the military. So uh, you know you you kind of you didn't fully leave the the punk world, but you certainly had to cut the mullet. My, some of my favorite pictures that you've been posting lately on your social media, and we'll get into it, are all the nicknames your brother had for you growing up. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. <dude. laughs> yeah. So the funny thing is, like people, um, like when I was uh, um, on patrol and stuff gang members would just crack jokes and I would crack back. Like we, you know, I had no problem with it. It's a, the, the running like theme was people don't ever like make you mad. I'm like, well, no dude, didn't you have an older brother? Like, you know, like my brother inoculated me to all of that. So when I got into basic training, drill sergeants should dog him out. I'm like, these are just words, man. Like I, I've, I've, I've been made fun of like accurately by my brother. With <laughs> You know, he was like, like his humor was like, like Richard Pryor and the most, severe drill sergeant mixed together you know what i mean and he and, he and i are best friends he's not on instagram unfortunately because i always tell him like dude you need to start an account you know because you gotta you gotta tell your side of, <laughs> of the story because people like not like they hate him but they're like man your brother was you know mean or i was like nah it, it was it's how we grew up everybody just cracked jokes but he and i we, we go eat breakfast together like we're we go see bands play like we've always been close friends like we would beat the hell out of each other when we were kids and break windows and every damn kitchen chair we had but like just his sense of humor he's one of the funniest people i've ever met and so now as adults we go back through these pictures and stuff and i'm like oh my god i could sit there and talk for 20 minutes on one picture just the, the stuff and, and like his sense of humor and and because i never drank like my, my memory is crystal clear of this stuff so even now, like he'll apologize and be like, "Man, I'm so sorry." Like, dude, no, man. Like, I'm not. It doesn't bother me. It's funny to me. And then when I share it with other people, then I, other people, go, oh, my brother did this to me or did that. Or I've had some older brothers reach out to me and go, "Man, I wonder if I dogged my younger brother out like that." I'm like, "Yeah, you probably. Chances are, you probably did. You need to go talk to that younger brother." But yeah, I, I like to make fun of myself. Then, I, then I know I'm not hurting anyone's feelings. I can, I can laugh and make everybody else laugh at my own. And you don't have to spend uh, thousands upon thousands of dollars to sit on a couch and tell a therapist why the color, <laughs> why the color purple makes you sad. So <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. It's like, like a lot of people are like, "Wow, you would think that it would have been bad, but not as good." So like when I went in the army, I I did like you said. So when I joined, I didn't I didn't make make it known necessarily punk rock and hardcore and all. It wasn't until I got to my unit and got into the barracks and would actually play music. And I'd probably been in like established about a year then. So I had kind of moved up a little bit um, to like assistant gunner or whatever. But but one of the first times I really screwed up in the Army and realized I need to be aware of what I'm doing and what I wear, I was wearing a Bad Brains t-shirt. And Bad Brains is like one of the greatest bands of all time. Uh, but they were out of the D.C. area when they first started. And so one of their album covers is like the National Capitol getting struck by lightning, right? And so the name of the band is like Bad Brains. Like people 
assumed it meant they were the, the negative aspect, but they were actually positive. Um, and for me as a young kid, I always looked at it as like, you know, the, the negativity of politicians, like politicians being self-serving, not serving the public. That's anyway. So I had a different meaning for that shirt in my, in my mind, but I, I'm wearing it, uh, on post <laughs> at, to go get a haircut. And I'm all of maybe like 18 years old, you know, a new private in the army. And uh, first sergeant or sergeant major snatches me up. Like we're in a PX, so it's like a, a like a Walmart almost for for soldiers. And I'm in there, you know, waiting in line to get a haircut. He sees that shirt, snatches me up, and makes me take it off in front of everybody and turn it inside out. And was basically like, "You will not disrespect the U.S. government, soldier." You know, and obviously he didn't say it that way. He cussed me out. And he he didn't know me. I didn't know him. But in the army, you can do that, right? He knew I was a a fresh soldier that was just being stupid. But in in my mind, I was thinking like, I wanted to be like, this is one of the greatest bands ever. <laughs> like, you know, the things that I get from them, like PMA and positive mental attitude. It, it, it didn't matter. It, it translated to, it looked anti-government, right? And so then I was kind of aware of, okay, people are going to see the music that I listen to and think certain things about. Me. And I mean, I got that from Sergeant stuff at mail call when I would get letters from bands because back then, we would write a lot, you know, like you, you, you try to network with bands and say, Hey, you know, if you come, if you come down South, you can stay at my house, you know, play a show here. We'll link you up with whoever's booking shows. Everything was handwritten back then. And so you just kind of keep that, that chain of communication open. So I was getting like postcards from bands and stuff. And I had one platoon sergeant that would see the mail, like when mail call would come in and one of the bands I liked was, was black train jack. You know, they were they weren't drinking, they weren't doing alcohol. Really positive band, great band, and he thought it, it was some type of communist stuff. You know, <laughs> so he's like throwing the letter at me and, and, and making me do push-ups and stuff. And he's like, you know, you call me, but I was a good soldier, so it was almost kind of like like playing jokes at a certain, you know, like poking fun at each other. Um, but it was a completely different concept for ranking sergeants to understand a kid could listen to punk rock and still love their country and still want to protect citizens and still feel like, Hey, you know, this is what it's about as human beings. It's not about necessarily supporting certain politicians or anything. It's about this, you know, that to me, it, I was very proud of serving the military. Like I, I, you know, I was like this, this is what I'm good at. I'm not, I'm not good at other things, but I've really enjoyed being a soldier. And Hey, you know, if, if there are bad people in the world who are going to hurt other people, I want to be part of, who's going to protect that, you know? And on top of that, that, that idea of punk rock of being the individual who is a problem solver or actually uses your own brain to think and not just conform because then you can get led astray very mm, quickly. Yeah. You know, if you don't always check yourself and always check your own motives, like why am I doing what I'm doing? You know? Well, and that, that nonconformity goes back to that's, that's almost the foundation of punk rock. Right. And, and you look at yeah. like, people who who know not to judge a book by its cover are these mm-hmm. these these punkers you know from from back in the day when did you get into the army so i i joined we'll keep it generic but it was in the early or uh mid 90s okay. so all my time in the in the military was in the 90s so j- i got out just just a year you know a couple of years right there before 911 so i was still on contract when 911 happened so i could have been called back you know in active reserves but I was in college at the time. Um, and so for me, I had already, like mentally, I had already moved on. Like I need to graduate, become a cop. Cause this is what I want to do. Like I, like I had changed 
motives. Okay, I want to do this. But after 9-11 happened and I became a cop, I had a buddy that had, had joined the reserves and I had a degree in psychology and he's like, man, you ought to check out this PSYOPs unit, you know, and I think they've changed it now, the names, but back then it was psychological operations. And I started going down that path like, ooh, do I want to join the reserves? Is this, is this something I'd want to get into because of the psychology background? But ultimately, I, I bowed out um, and just stayed being a cop and focused, you know, 100% into being a cop, into learning games and going more proactive and trying to shape my next, you know, two or three decades in law enforcement to be able to say, I want to do exactly what I want to do in the department. And that's going to be gang related or homicide related or drug related. Like these are the things I want to do this, like in the army, you know, this is what I'm good at. Leave me alone and let, let me do that. You know, like, like I said, like you said earlier, like, like punk rock questioning. And like, there are plenty of things that I looked at in police work and said, this doesn't work. And this is why, you know, why are we doing this this way? I don't want to just conform. Let's question this. Oh, boom. This is how we can approach it differently. Um, and so, having that gang information or having that, that um, motivation to start working gangs opened up that creativity to be like, okay, how are we going to address these problems? Cause our city did not have gangs before, you know, I became a cop. So, so we, myself and a couple of other officers, that's how we kind of came up through the ranks focusing on gangs. And, and guess what? One of those other cops was a punk rocker, just like me grew up. I mean, almost down to the same, year we were born same band same everything he just happened to be from new york but that's how we clicked was on the punk rock thing and for him same thing he's questioning everything like look i'm seeing i'm seeing red bandanas i'm seeing blue bandanas like these are gang members and because we had that background it was easier for us to build rapport with gang members because we're coming from that perspective we know what it feels like being judged by cops or getting that negative treatment it was like okay I'm going to build rapport with this gang member because he's a human being. I'm a human being. Let's, let's talk, you know? And so that's where I think he and I and a couple others, when we were using those techniques really learned so much about gangs based on that, because people willingly would tell us the information early on, you know, and as we went through the ranks, we did other specialized assignments, you know, and, de- and like for me developing, Sort, you know, uh, strategies of how to develop informants and sources and interview techniques and all of that stuff that it was so hard for us to get that information. Doing the punk rock thing, I built my own classes and said, okay, I'm going to do it myself. Like, I can't find the training out there. I'm going to design training for officers. So when they step in the classroom, if they're a deputy, an officer, an agent, you know, federal or state, like, I want them to step in and go, this is the type of gang training that, that they need, you know? So that punk rock mindset was, I'm not, I'm not going to wait around and have somebody else do it because it's not getting done. Like, how do I do it now? So it was many, many nights sitting up doing lesson plans, getting certified to be an instructor and then designing these courses and designing these courses the way I want them to be, not what I think everyone else does. So breaking the mold of like bringing in gang members to my classes, their faces are concealed. It's like, okay, we're going to talk about this gang. Boom, here's here's an actual member. He's going to tell you more about it. And it would blow students' minds when they would come in and sit in class and go, wow, like, I didn't know that was about to happen. It's like, yeah, well, wait till day two when we talk about this gang or day three. So you know, sometimes it's a five-day course. Each day I've got different gang members coming in. Faces covered up, 
obviously I don't use any of their real names and stuff, but the information is there. And then teaching rapport building where, you know, sworn officers can go. I, I had it completely backwards. I thought the gang work was about flexing on people and, and trying to just control and dominate an area. And it's like, no, it's the opposite. It's a lot of rapport building. It's a lot of convincing young men and women. You don't want to be in this cycle. You don't want to be in this gang because I know everything about your gang from the hand signs, rank structure, probably when your next meeting is going to be. I can tell you all the previous crimes you're linked to, you know, all that stuff. Like Once they know they're on the losing end, oftentimes they want to cooperate. And it may take two or three years of encounters where they go, you're right. You've been right for the last five years or seven years. Like Every time I see you on the block or every time I see you in an interview room, you coming at me with this stuff about my future and my kids and my decisions. And guess what? I'm old enough now, mature enough now, you know, I see what you're saying. And it's that idea. It's not the idea of coming in and arresting people and high-fiving and like rubbing it in their face the way we talked about, like the cops of the the 80s and maybe the early 90s, like, yeah, ha-ha, I got you with some crack and a gun. You can go do 15 years in prison. Like, what is that going to do? That's going to harden someone to be like, okay, it's, it's us versus them. All right, that's how it's going to be. That can that will contribute to future violence against officers. But if you're sitting down with a gang member and you're having a normal conversation and you actually care about their decisions and you're explaining to them their path, like I've been able to tell people before, like you're in this phase of the gang world. Phase two is coming this way. And phase three is coming. Like As these phases become true in your life, understand I'm the one who actually cares more about you than your ranking gang members. Because your ranking gang members want you to commit violence. They want you to work in sales of drug trades or fraud or running women, whatever it is. It's all negative. It's all criminal. I'm telling you as a human being, this is what life's going to be like for you in the gang. And as that begins to come to fruition, as it happens in your life, know that the next things that I'm telling you, your life's going to be like, you already can, can see your future or you change that path and you go down this path where you actually seek legitimate employment. You take care of your girl, you take care of your kids or you fall back. You miss a meeting here. You miss a meeting there. You know, remember that grandmother you got out in the County or the grandmother you got back up top. Well, why don't you move back up top to grandma's house or wherever it is? Like start to help develop their own exit strategy to get out of that, you know, to get out of that. Get the whole idea, like this whole strategy and movement, it's completely different than what the average person thinks gang work is. If that makes sense, that's a long ass answer I just gave you. But, but that's what I'm saying is like that idea of that punk rock mentality of this is our problem. How are we going to address it? The training wasn't there. Let's build it. You know? Well, I mean, I, I knew getting into this that you were going to be dropping knowledge on me left, right and center. Uh, and I, I, uh, I feel as though I was right about that because from my perspective, having never worked the gang side of the house, right? You know, I've never worked gangs, never worked narcs, um, never worked homicide, you know, those things that all kind of roll into get human trafficking. Um, but what you're talking about that, that again, that punk rock uh, uh, mentality of that nonconformist, that disruptive behavior, right? Disruptive is like mm-hmm. the new, the new buzzword in, in training from tactical operations to how we conduct law enforcement investigations. Uh, mm-hmm. But, but you're, you're working. It, it sounds like you're working on stopping the problem at the source because before I clicked the record button, you and I were talking about how 
these gang members get get rolled up. And in Arizona, uh, it, it's a lot of uh, Hispanic gangs. Again, just our proximity, um, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, geographic proximity. Um, but these gang members get rolled up and then they get put away for, like you said, you know, 7, 10, 15 years. And I, I remember talking to a dude who done uh he and i worked together before i was uh, a cop and he'd done like four or five years in, in a state prison for for drugs and and he told me something to the effect of like and i forget i think it was like after you serve like seven years or something like that in prison you shouldn't get out um and that was his perspective having been in mm-hmm. prison uh and he goes mm-hmm. because you're surrounded like by by all these other these gang members these drug dealers like they're not in there going to church and getting mm-hmm. bachelor's degrees. They're in there. They're getting an education for sure. Like they're getting a PhD level education on crime and, and yeah. how, uh, okay, this is what I did. This is what you did. This is what you did. Okay. So let's not do these things and let's tweak the way that we approach crime. Um, and they're getting attached to, where maybe they were just with, you know, small local gangs when they got, when they mm-hmm. got picked up, uh, you know, uh, now they're getting attached to these, these gangs with massive national influence. It's, it's the Latin Kings, it's the bloods and the Crips, uh, the, the motorcycle gangs, uh, you know, the MS 13 and the Mexican mafia, the Norteños and Sereños. It, it it's not doing any, anybody, any good They're They're getting put in prison for X number of years. Um, which is damaging to their families and their upbringing. And you can approach it with this, you know, well, F you, you put yourself in this position, but then they're getting this gang education because they're joining a gang because whether or not you like it, prisons, prison populations seem to section themselves off by gang, by race, um, Mm -hmm. through no design of, Mm -hmm. of, of the corrections officers or, or, or the, the warden of the prison is just how, how it all seems to come together. Um, mm-hmm. And then they're getting out still allied to these gangs. But here you are teaching your guys and whoever, you know, whoever you're able to teach out in the South or, or wherever, you know, your travels take you that, Hey, let's try and stop the problem before it even gets to that point so that they mm-hmm. can, they can flip themselves around. And then it's just a non-issue. I don't have to worry about what happens when they get out of prison because they're not going to freaking go to prison to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the idea is on on patrol. It begins <clears throat> as patrol officers are encountering thirteen, fourteen, fifteen year olds or sixteen year olds that they already see them getting involved in that or whatever. Like I was saying, as as you build that report as a person, like I always tell the the students, like let gang members know your name, like let them know your face, your body language, your car number, because. And, and when I say that, I'm talking about patrol that works the same area all the time. Because you're conditioning the, the population to know who you are and what's expected. So if you get out of the car and you walk up to the gang members, and all of a sudden you tell somebody, you know, sit down on the curb, cross your feet at the ankles, extend your hands out, whatever. All of a sudden everybody goes, oh, today's not joking day. Like He's not joking today, right? But, but Monday he rolled through and told two jokes and then just, Everybody laughed and he let, you know, the, the cop left. Well, now he's coming back. It's not joke time. It's like, listen, you know, you follow commands, boom, boom, cuff them. All right, you got warrants. You know, we're going to go downtown. We're going to take care of these warrants. Hopefully everything will work out for you. But that's what's happening today. 
then the block knows or the gang knows like, okay, that officer's cool with us every day. He or she comes in, they talk. They had to arrest that guy on a warrant. No big deal. He cooperated. He gets processed. We're done. And a lot of times, you know, that is they get in the car and a guy will say like, hey, can you get some, some numbers out of my phone? Or, hey, can I call my girl? Can I do this? Well, that's up to the officer's discretion. I always, if I had no reason to to not trust them or like their body language was congruent with what they're telling me, I'm like, yeah, why would I not? So I've, I've called guys, you know, before their girls or whatever, and they're like, hey, so-and-so's right here. He's handcuffed. He wants you to know he's got warrants. He's not going to make it home tonight or whatever. Like, Because that keeps them from having drama when they get home and some, mm-hmm. some girls maybe yelling at them like, you were supposed to be here, and now you're running around. I mean, whatever it is, it's like, why not do that for, for this guy? He's showing me respect. He didn't run. He didn't spit in my face. These aren't even my charges. I'm serving arrest warrants where he didn't go to court. You know, that little bit, people who do, like, police work, they understand, like, that little bit will prevent future assaults, or at least that person in that exact scenario gets out, gets back on the block or gets back home. He's hanging out, and everybody's screaming, you know, F the police or whatever. In his mind, he may be thinking the same thing, but then he also has to remember, well, that one cop took me to jail. He was cool with me. You know what I mean? Like right. the, the next encounter, if the cop's cool, each encounter is, is for the most part positive until it gets negative. And, you know, I've been in use of force and all that and explain to people like you, this, the reason you're in, involved in this right now is because you chose to put your hand in your waistband or you chose to put your hand in your pocket after I told you not to, that sort of thing. Then they're like, okay, you're right. It's nothing personal. I didn't get out of the car and say, I can't wait to just tackle this guy and fight with him. It's like, no, you didn't listen to anything I said. You did the opposite, and that's why I had to do the actions that I did. Mm-hmm. It's like an after-actions review, basically, or whatever, for the citizen. When that happens, a lot of times, people are more understanding. And then you get reinforced by that if you're listening to jail phone conversations or you're doing a phone extraction and you actually see gang members talking back and forth about officers specifically or they all in the jail phone call and they say, nah, he was cool. He got me processed. It's no big deal. You know, or conversely, they get on the phone and say, if I could have got to my five or if I could have got to my gun, I'd have, I'd have smoked that dude, you know, because all that extra stuff he was saying or whatever it is, like you, you hear this and then you bring it back and go, okay, Hey guys, Understand when you do this and you make it all personal or like we talked about earlier, like you're celebrating somebody going to jail or you're, or you're taunting them and saying like, yeah, we're going to arrest everybody or whatever. And you, you, you do almost like that schoolyard trash talking, like that causes people to react emotionally, you know, like like their emotions. And then you, you end up with guys who will punch a cop. And then later you find out they really didn't even want to hit the cop. It was just all the, you know, the smack talking or just talking junk or just how the cop was treating them. Right. I, it's just, it's one of those ideas of, well, we can keep arresting gang members and, and we're going to keep having to focus on arrest gang members. I'm not saying don't arrest gang members. I'm just saying have that rapport with people and explain to them. It's, it's almost like a mentor on a certain level. If you're seeing the same gang members or you're working like a RICO or an OCDEF investigation, or you're working, you're concentrating on one of the most violent gangs in your city, and you know everything about that gang, at every encounter, lay it out for them. Explain it to them. Explain to them how they're on the losing end of that, of that gang and what the future holds for them. Like one of the questions I used to ask, I was like, how many years are you willing to do in prison for your gang? Is it five years? 
10, 15, 20, are you willing to do a life sentence for your game? And a lot of guys are like, I'm not trying to get locked up for them. Well, that's what happens when you join a game, especially a very structured game. So when people are, are drawn to gangs, they may seek out the game as opposed to being born into it or being in prison. So a lot of times this is like a younger person in a neighborhood or whatever, and somehow they run across a gang member or they're just impressed with this guy on the block and they're like, yeah, you know, that dude right there is Pyru Blood or he's, you know, uh, Fruit Town Brim or whatever. And they're like, now I just like how he moves. I like how he talks to people. Or he may have shown them love, like gave them some money when they were a kid. For whatever reason, they're drawn to that game. And it's like once they want to join it and they're told police don't know anything about that game. They don't know the lingo, the rank, none of that. And then every encounter they have, the police don't know about the game. It makes them feel uh, emboldened, like, okay, we can do whatever we want to do. The opposite of that is when someone's sitting in a room or has an encounter and a, and a gang or a, um, officer and an agent or a deputy or whatever starts to lay everything out. And they're like, wow, like, you know, my rank structure. Yeah, I know your rank structure. Like, I know your hand signs. You start throwing up hand signs and they, you can laugh about this with gamers. But like, look, like, man, I know all these hand signs that you throw every day. I know every one of them. Like, how is it that I know your hand signs? That's when they start to realize, oh, people are talking. The whole stop snitching is not true like everybody's talking like so do you want to be on the on the receiving end of that like this is what's going to happen in your future if i already know all this about your game imagine the dirt that i know about the game the crimes that i know and and murder is forever so you mm-hmm. commit a murder it could be 20 years from now you could you could get indicted and think about the guys you're running with now in 20 years are they willing to to lay down 30 years of life in prison for you no the same thing it's like that question of how many years are you willing to do in prison? Because when you're we're dealing with a younger gang member who's under the age of, say, 25, frontal cortex or frontal lobe of the brain is still developing. Long-term decision-making is, is still not strong because you're, you're a younger person. Coupled with the impulsivity and coupled with the gang mentality, at 16, 17, 18, gang members are making some really bad decisions that are going to affect them the rest of their lives. And so sometimes you have to remind them of that. Like, hey, when you put your hands on that gun and then your buddy takes that gun and shoots and kills somebody, but your prints come back on it or your DNA comes back on it, like now you may be part of this investigation. And whether you pull the trigger or not, you got to get over that hurdle. You know what I mean? It's like now, now you got to try to clear your name of an, of an investigation that you're forensically linked to, right? So someone has to be able to explain why your prints are on a murder weapon. And all it takes is for someone to lie and be like, oh, I didn't shoot him. My buddy did. Yeah, you know I what I mean? him with the gun. Right, yeah. So it's it's a lot of talking to people as a person. Like you have to kind of break down that that idea of um, this is not the show The First 48 or this is not uh, a TV show or whatever. Like, you know, this is reality. This is two of us talking. And I'm telling you, this is your future. And if you stay on that path, you only have yourself to blame for it. You know what I mean? And it's not not, not being condescending or coming across like, uh, I mean, there's a way to explain to someone, you're you're the city's number one problem right now. And so the city's going to put 100% of effort in behind disrupting this cycle of violence. So it's either going to be through multiple arrests, it's going to be through, you know, a year-long investigation where everybody's going to be charged federally. Like, whatever it is, 
there's going to be some repercussions for all the gun violence and, and the shootings and the murders. And so a lot of times if you're, if you have multiple gangs, like the city I work in multiple sets, we've got more than 20 plus blood sets all operating separately, independently of one another. But if you're talking to gang members and you explain, don't be the number one set <laughs> on our list, so to speak, like don't be the most violent, don't be the most problematic, or you're going to get all our attention. So some, some smart uh, gang members will actually tell their subordinates, like, like stay calm. Don't get out there doing all that rah-rah stuff. Like don't, don't go out there causing problems in the street. Like let's move smartly because they're telling us <laughs> that, that they're going to focus on the most violent gang. So if we're not the most violent gang, we don't have to worry about that many arrests. So then when multiple arrests are made and the news reports on it or it hits, you know, social media and like all the gang members are like, you know, did you hear about so-and-so set? Like they, they scooped up 15 guys in one day. Then that idea comes back to that gang member's head. Like, Oh, that cop or that detective was telling the truth. Like they're really putting it in. They're doing it. Like, so that set's taken out. Like we don't want to be that. So, so you, you're actually conditioning other gang leaders to not be violent. Don't get caught in that cycle of violence or don't create it. Yeah. And, and you, you get violent or, you know, you uh, you shoot and wound or kill a cop like that, mm -hmm. the entire world will come down on you. Like it is, it is twenty twenty two. We will find you, and we mm -hmm. will put every ounce of who we are into finding you, and you're gonna have a bad day. So, but again, it's it's about being real with people. I mean, that if agencies aren't doing it, they should. But if your agency has a street crimes unit or a gang unit, um, you got to stick your OITs out there. You know, your, your fresh faced mm -hmm. new guys uh, and girl, when I say new guys, I mean, everybody, um, your new officers out there, because that's where you're going to get that street education. Because if you grew up, mm -hmm. I'll be honest, like I grew up in an upper middle class, uh, you know, family uh, and, and setting in high school and all that stuff. Like I, I didn't have a whole lot of a, uh, you know, I didn't have a tough time growing up. Mm -hmm. I, I certainly can't sit there and look a gang member dead in the eye. Uh, and be like, oh no, dude, I get it. Um, mm -hmm. But that part of that education came from when I graduated the academy, and after so many weeks of field training, hey, go get in the gang unit's car, and you're going to ride around for a week, and you're going to learn from them. Mm -hmm. And that was truly, yeah. I think, the first, you know, one of the first times that, that I saw it in because you can get told uh, a million and one things in the academy where you're going to drink from a fire hose, but when you see these mm -hmm. gang, these gang detectives or these street crimes unit out there. And they're just talking with people. They're not. Mm -hmm. They're not sitting there like, "Look how shiny my badge is, and look at my look at <laughs> yeah. my gun, and rah, I'm yeah. gonna do all this yeah. to you." But it's just mm -hmm. a matter of talking to people, and they're on like a first name basis or a nickname yeah. basis with some of these dudes out there. Um, and the, these cats know, like, oh hey, when when that Toyota rolls around, or when that when that mm -hmm. car rolls around, that's that's detective so-and-so with the gang unit. Like you need to be cool with that dude. Or we're going to have a, like he's cool until you give him a reason not to be cool. Yeah. 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 That's what I mean. Like getting that full attention. And so the, the whole, whole idea too, about talking and building reports, you can also assess then like you get, like if someone is a part of the street crimes unit, pro act, would you call it proactive unit? And they're always, you know, chat, you know, um, talking to gang members they can also assess and when they sit into a room and have to actually pull resources and what they're going to focus on someone may say 
oh, well, what about, you know, that dude, he's got the high for that blood set. I'm like, well, so what? He's in charge, but he's pushing an agenda of peace right now. He just wants everybody to make money, right? But this gang over here can only have 10 members or sometimes even five or six, but they're the most violent per capita we're dealing with, and they got beef with all these other sets, so we need to focus on them, right? It's like that idea. As you're talking to people, and you can read it. I mean, a good beat officer can pull up on the block and see the same people every day, and they pull up, and all of a sudden, everybody's behavior is different, right? It's either because someone's got a gun on them, or they were just talking about something serious, or they're prepping to go do something, right? Like when you talked about earlier about like assaulting an officer, uh, I had a, a recruit with me. We stop a, a gang member, go up, we're doing our encounter, he's in a car. And basically, I asked him about some stuff that had occurred and what was going on. And he's like, I can't I can't talk about that. I'm like, okay. And then he's like, but I'm not trying to go to jail today. So what y'all need to know is this. And what was going on was a gathering of multiple blood sets were talking, and they were going to put it to a vote on assaulting a police officer, right? And the majority of the vote was like, that's dumb. Let's not do that. But the ones who were pushing it were seeing it personal you know they felt they were personally being attacked or persecuted by a certain officer right so they knew that officer's schedule patrol car number like all of that stuff and the and the people that wanted to do the assault were trying to put it into play and and laid it out there what their what their plan was to do it and the others were like no we can't we can't support that because one they were smart enough to know like you said you're now bringing down the full force of all the resources and then two that's like some of them probably were like, that's beef between you and that officer. I don't have anything to do with it. that officer's cool with me, or I don't care what you got going on. I'm not about to go do five years in prison because y'all are trying to plot on a police officer. So the, the guy that, you know, I was talking to the gang member was giving me that information. He and I never had any problems. We'd always encountered each other peacefully, you know, and we would even joke, like you talked about earlier, like, you every city has their own history so you can grow up in the suburbs as a cop and never experience a street fight none of that but become a cop and then if you're paying attention to your area you'll then learn some of the crimes that really affect people if it's a four-year-old kid getting shot or if it's a grandmother you know who got shot in the drive-by like and you talk to someone about that that's how you build that that rapport and it's that idea of you know Oh, I grew up in the suburbs. I've never been in a fight. I've ne- I never experienced gang violence. But in my two years as a cop, this is what I've seen here. Boom, boom, boom. And you, and you name crimes that are very personal to those gang members. And you explain to them, my sole purpose is to keep something like this from happening again. I don't want to see another kid shot. I don't want to see a grandmother shot. Hell, I don't want to see you shot, man. You know, that's one of the things that I would talk to guys like, you, you're messing around out here. You're going to get shot. And, and when you do get shot, you have to decide who's going to take care of your family, who's going to take care of your kids, you know, all that stuff. Or when someone shoots at you and misses and hits your loved one, like that's going to be some messed up stuff. And so gang members are not heartless. These are human beings. And that's the biggest hurdle to get over with, with sometimes training officers and deputies and uh, agents is like human be- like on the human level, gang members have kids. They don't want their kids harmed. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like going to, it's like going to work. This is business between two gang members. Don't bring the kids into it. Mm-hmm. But when kids get shot, you can build, you know, human connection over that and talk about that. People, 
they're, they're, it's weird. It's like I talk about when gang members are crying and people are like, what, what? And some officers, they don't know any better. Sometimes they're like, oh, it's soft. You know, I'm like, no, man, that's a human being who's dealing with trauma, who's dealing with their own stressors in life. And here they feel vulnerable enough that they're letting all the emotions out. And it's, it's intense to be in a room and a gang member's crying. And you know that gang members either committed murders or violence. And, they're, and sometimes they're crying for their own personal reasons, maybe. But a lot of times it's because they know they're bringing violence into their families. Or their, or their parents, or their grandmothers. Like sometimes, as as officers, we don't, we may not get to see that unless we're part of a specialized unit, or like you said earlier, like a detective doing an interview or something, or, or go to someone's home and you're talking in the home. It's like, you know, I'm here just talking to you as a citizen. I'm not, I don't have a search warrant. I'm nothing. I'm just talking to you. But we're talking about the kid that was out here in the cul-de-sac with his brain hanging out of his head, you know. And then gangers like, yeah, that's whatever. That was my brother, my cousin, my best friend. Like. Yeah, let's talk about that. Did you see that? Did you see his brain? Like, man, stop. Yeah, stop talking about that. that. Then you understand, like, okay, we're we're building this. We're on the same team. I want to solve this crime, and you don't want to live in a neighborhood where your friends are getting shot and killed. You know what I mean? Like, it's all that stress, all that uh, anxiety, that living with their head on a swivel, always knowing that there's some enemies around the corner. And hell, sometimes guys are getting robbed by their own sets. You know. Dudes are flashing money on, on social media and then they're getting robbed by guys that are in their own set. And what's sad is when they figure that out and go, damn, man, like I, I just got robbed by my own set. Like, yeah, that's terrible. Like your own dudes that you've done dirt with are now robbing you because you got a different plug or you got a fraud thing going. So you got like five bands in your pocket and you take a picture of it. Now they know that they come put a gun in your face, rob you. And then act like they're going to help you go catch the guys that robbed. Like it's crazy, like just a complete breakdown. And guys realize that they've been sold a bill of goods, and they've joined a set that, in the end, is going to get them in prison or you know in the grave. And so sometimes you have to explain, like, what's your exit strategy? Like, so if I know the set really well, I may say, hey, you can lay your flag down right now. You can take your bandana out at the next meeting. And just tell them, look, I'm falling back. I got to take care of my kids or I got to do whatever. Or, hey, these cops are all over me. It's hot. Wherever I go, they're, they're following me. So I'm not bringing any problems on the set. I'm going to lay my flag down. I'm, I'm out. Right? Some sets will actually allow gang members to do that. Others will be like, no, 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 no. This is for life. Like, you don't walk away. Because they're afraid they're going to walk away with their secrets. Right? Mm -hmm. But other sets are like, well, if we hang on to that person, they're disgruntled they're going to cause problems within the game, right? They're either going to like, they could bring drama with the cops. They could bring drama within our ranks. Like, why wouldn't we just let that person go? Right. Or they can flip to another game. And that's a lot of times that's kind of looked down upon, but some guys will be like, so there's so many different blood sets. So, so when someone says that they're a blood, a lot of times, like what, what I see is officers will be like, Oh yeah, that guy's a blood. And then they just move on. It's like, Oh, stop. Blood just means they're, a gang, but they're part of this overall, I, I call it like a profession. Like there's no such thing as a highest ranking blood. There's no, there's no hierarchy that goes all the way up to the highest ranking blood in the U S it doesn't work that way. It's like a profession. So someone says they're a blood. Okay. Are you East coast or West coast? So there's an entire multiple nations on the East coast that originated in New York back in the mid nineties, like 1993, 94, 95 that have proliferated throughout the East Coast states and all out throughout the South. 
But we've also got an influx of West Coast. So Brims, Pyru, like all these, you know, Bloodstone villains. We've got people from all over now. So when we encounter a blood, we have to break it down to what coast and then what coast, what nation, and then within that nation, what set, and then within that set, what bloodline. Like, so it's a very, it's the equivalent of someone, you know, the two of us meet at a party or somewhere and you're like, hey, I'm a cop. I'm like, yeah, I'm a cop too. That's the same as being like, you're blood, I'm a blood. But you and I are not in the same chain of command. We don't work for the same organization. Hell, we're not even in the same part of the country. It's just the same thing with games. And so the, the quicker we can kind of get, uh, understand that, the better we can understand the in, why intel is so important. So when we're talking about that and someone says they're a blood, it's like if you can narrow down all the way to what nation, set, bloodline, you can eventually or, or possibly narrow down the suspect pool in the crimes that these guys are committing and who their associates would be, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right? So, so like if, if you and I were talking, you told me exactly who you worked for and what your assignment was and what unit you were on, I would know who your coworkers are potentially. And the same thing with me. But if you and I are just talking and you say, yeah, I'm a cop, I'm like, yeah, I'm a cop too. And then we don't talk anymore about police work. I, have, I don't even know where, to, where you work. Like, I don't even know what your assignment is. Hell, I don't even know if that means you're federal or state or whatever. It's the same. If, if we look at it the same way with gangs, it's like, okay, that dude said he's crip, but okay, what crip? What gang is he? What block is he? You know, you're, you're putting it like in a hierarchy, like a structure almost. It's like, so that's uh, where all the, you know. It's like ancestry or 23 and me, right? It's genealogy. Uh, yeah. Of yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's, it is very much like, um, like if you, if you watch like how scientists work genus and phylum and species, you know, it's the same thing. You're, you're bracketing people or bracketing things into how it makes sense. Right. It's, it's the same thing. Just like you said, like genealogy or, or a company, maybe the way the company operates, but it, but it, but to, to get down into like the weeds, so to speak, of that on the Intel side, people go, well, that's a huge waste of time until you have uh, a chief or a sheriff or, you know, a special agent in charge of a region. And they're like, look, we got to develop a strategy. What is our strategy? It can't be gangs are bad. Like, yeah, we know they're bad. Like, what's our strategy going to be? How are we going to focus on this gang? And then like, it, it, the follow up question should be, well, if we're going to focus on this game, what do we know about it? And that should be a damn 30 minute to an hour presentation. And if it's not, and every agency is different, I know that and the resources are different, but I have encountered patrol officers that could, could give an hour long block on the gangs that are operating in their, in their beat or their districts because they're so involved, because they're talking to people, you know, because they've been trained or taught, look for these signs. You know, when you see the bandana, what color is it? How is it folded? What side of the body is it on? Like, if you can identify all that, you don't even have to know anything about gangs. Just document it and send it to, to someone who knows, and then they can look at a genus, phylum, species, and be like, oh, okay, this person's wearing a red bandana, folded on the right side of the body, hanging out of the back right pocket, and as it's folded, it's showing three paisleys on display, or what they would call three blood drops. Oh, well, here in our area in the South, that right side of the body is oftentimes East Coast, right? So we know they were probably an East Coast nation, all right? Well, the three paisleys or three blood drops on display like that, often that's nine tray blood. So then you can go back and plug them in 
United Blood Nation out of New York City, bracket it down to nine tray, which is all over the East Coast. That's the gang itself. Okay, what bloodline? Like, in other words, who, who do they report directly under? But all that can be just off of documenting clothing attire or, or what you're seeing on somebody from tattoos to uh, lingo that they may even use or phone extraction. You're looking through a phone extraction. You're like, they keep using this same term over, you know, well, oh, what is that term? It's like, you know, uh, wh- whatever it is. Like, oh, they keep referring to everybody as five. Oh, okay. All right. Well, what else have they got? Oh, they got these three. Their E's are backwards, and it's a three in all their terminology. Every word they're typing, the E is backwards for three. Oh, okay. And the B's are nine. Oh, it's nine and three. It's nine trace. Like you're putting all these little indicators together to figure out who the gang is. So it's it, it can be it can be applicable to human trafficking investigations, drug investigations, fraud. All it is is. What is it that you're looking for and what is your information? That's how a gang intel anyway could, could be utilized as well as, like I said, developing strategies or briefing higher commands to understand. We know we've got this huge gang problem, but really we can focus on these few gangs and this is how we can do it. And it will actually curb the, the violence. The gun violence will go down because these are your key players. You don't have to worry that you've got 60 separate gangs operating in your city these core groups right here, these two or three groups, that's all we're going to, all we need to focus on proactively. They're the ones pushing the violence. And, and with that proactive work, I mean, are you guys, um, in general, rather are gang investigators, hopefully, hopefully they're getting out there with, with their homicide investigators and, and maybe working, you know, a concurrent investigation, be like, okay, homicide has, uh, okay. Like dead person over there. Here's our list of suspects. We believe it was maybe a gangland shooting. Okay, gang unit. Here's the information I have. Help me out. Is that is that cooperation taking place, or are there roadblocks there? I mean, if you could speak a little bit to, to that. Yeah, yeah. So the the main thing is if everyone is ego free, <laughs> like like no one don't don't allow your ego to get in the way. So. Let's say uh, a person gets shot. They're in the middle of a cul-de-sac. Homicide unit responds. They start working it. And homicide goes, wow, the only information we have for suspect is this, whatever, you know, uh, white male, six foot four, uh, and has long, shaggy blonde hair, but has a tattoo IGD on his neck, right? So that's your suspect description, but you have no clue really what's going on yet. You're in the beginning phase. And I completely made that up. That's not a real case. I'm just making up a hypothetical. So then that unit, that homicide unit, can then go if they have a gang intel or gang unit and say, listen, here's our victim. We're working victimology, so we, and we understand our area. We, we, we're kind of familiar with that. But this is our suspect description. What, what does that mean to you all? And so a really good gang unit or gang intel can take those – that bolo or that information and say, Oh, we're dealing with this white male, six foot four, whatever, long blonde hair, IGD on his neck. Oh, boom. We've got a bunch of insane gangster disciples and predominantly they're white males. And predominantly they operate in this part of the area or the County or city or whatever, but they're not known to be in that area. That's interesting that he may be in that area. Well, what's the background of the victim? Oh, the victim is whatever, you know, could be gang related. Maybe not. But the gang intel unit or gang unit can read indicators like that on a person and go, oh, now we're going to narrow down your suspect pool. Here are all the known insane gangster disciples we know. 
and there's only say 20 out of those 20, how many are over six foot or, you know, how many are known to have long blonde hair and, and what does long blonde hair mean? Sh- you know, touching the tips of their ears or does it mean like mullet all the way down? You know, so, oh, but how many of them have IGD on their neck? Oh, one. And here he is. Boom. Okay, cool. So it can take uh, a whodunit down to a, this is probably who did it, but now we got to work this angle, right? Almost like if you look at like gang intel on that sense, almost like translating, you know, like they're going to translate the signs and symbols, so to speak, to help the investigation. Where a lot of cities kind of get it wrong is they think gang intel will know everything. Like, you know, and, and that's where the ego comes in, where someone walks in a room and says, oh, you're the gang guy. You know, what does this mean? And then when you don't know it, then they're like, oh, see, you're not an expert. Well, I can't know everything. Right. But, but how can we use this to narrow down suspect pool? Or if you have a really good gang unit that's working active sources on the intel side. In other words, they're not working gang informants to go out there and just buy drugs or buy a gun. They're working more intel. Like, what is the overall mission statement, so to speak, of this gang? What, what's going on? How do they operate? Do they charge dues? What's the rank structure like? Are people getting promoted based off of merit? Or are they getting promoted based off of, you know, um, nepotism? Like, are they related to the the higher-ups? Like, that's going to matter because their subordinates are going to get disgruntled because they're not making promotions off of merit, which sounds crazy. But now you can come in and flip five gang members into informants if you know they're all disgruntled or they're not happy with that. That's where gang intel can really take off as a unit if they have that at those active sources and they can get information and go, okay, so-and-so is in charge of the gang right now, and they're, they're really just not pushing violence. They don't want us committing violence. Well, that's good. Because then all of a sudden when it, when it changes and that person goes to prison and the next person up takes that spot, oh, he's the wild card. He's the one that pushes beef and violence. Like, then as a gang intel, you could be like, okay, well, now we need to focus on upper echelon of this gang. Not necessarily subordinates, but the upper echelon because they're the ones influencing these guys to go out there and do shooting. So if you have motivated people who can get into the intel cycle and understand how to develop it, you can almost get ahead of some of the violence. And you can start to look at one gang and, and, and pick out who the most violent are and what their motives and mindsets are and then go, okay, that's who we need to focus on. If he's selling drugs out of this hotel, then drug unit you need to be working at. Or if, you got a, if you're lucky and you got a gang unit, hey, shift fire and go work to that hotel and more importantly focus on the third floor or whatever where this guy's mm-hmm. operating at because if you get a drug charge on him and he goes away one you now get access to his jail phone calls and a lot of gang members will talk drama over the jail phone they don't really censor themselves and then if they do they may speak in code so sometimes if you know the code or the deciphers you can figure out what they're saying over the jail phone call but either way it's disrupting their ability to walk into a meeting and say, this is going to happen. You're going to put in work and go shoot this. Or, you know, you have some gang members or gang supervisors that want to expand aggressively. So they're going to find other sets and they're going to give them a peaceful approach and be like, Hey, you're blood, we're blood, but you're a different set. I, you know, I respect you, but I want you and all your subordinates to flip under me. And I'll give you more rank in my organization, and then you can re- recruit as many people as you want, 
and you can charge them dues. And when they come to the meeting, they got to pay their dues and you get a cut of that free money. Like you don't have to go out there and sell or commit robberies or fraud. Right. Like you just get more followers. They pay more money in dues and you get that free money. It's a, it's a pyramid scheme. So if you have someone doing that as a, as a gang leader, they can now build an entire army based off of that. And so we've had it in the past where it's been like that, where this peaceful approach is like you flip your gang set under us and now you become this, this larger nation. The drawback is when that other set says, no, nah, we're good. We don't want to flip under you. Then it's like, okay, well now you're, you're going to feel what it feels like because now you're my enemy. Right. We, we wanted you to join us. You don't want to join us. Now you're the enemy. And then, then that can, can cause your violence to go up your, your drive bys or your just indiscriminate violence to push people out of an area. And that's, uh, um, uh, it, it, it's, it seems to be that there, there is no one answer to curbing gang violence. It's, it's this multi dimensional approach on, on mm-hmm. behalf of law enforcement that, that we have to take, because again, I think I said it earlier, right? They do this for a living too. I've heard it said that, that gang members and drug dealers will teach you more about running a business uh, and running an yeah. organization than mm-hmm. any business college professor at any university, <laughs> yeah. right? Like yeah. you want to, yeah. you truly want to learn entrepreneurship. Oh, okay. Boy, do I have the person for you? <laughs> yeah, because you can watch it. And, and part of what I teach in class are like templates like personality templates and you can watch how gang members interact and how their leadership styles are. And some of the most effective gang leaders are the charismatic ones. The ones who actually, what they say, like, like they're showing people like love, like real love, like, okay, we're going to take care of you. You're going to be all right. It's that supportive, but yet they still have that edge. If they want to go out there and put in work and shoot someone, everyone knows they they're capable of doing that. But they don't have to do that. They don't have to lead by fear. Then you watch some gang members that lead completely by fear, and their organization doesn't necessarily grow in numbers, but their their followers will do what they're told because they don't want to feel that wrath of that violence. And so, like you're saying, like, like business-wise, we've had one set go from five original members. So I can actually go back and, and, and show you five original members that in the jail letter that came to them and said, you're all um, responsible for building your own house, your own set. And these five became 15, 20, 25, 30. So you get up into about 300 members of that gang. So we're looking at it and going, how do they grow so quickly and so, so fast like that? Well, they were charging dues. So when someone would come to the meeting and they had to pay their $31 every, every meeting, it, it's an incentive to go out there and recruit more people. So as these gang members got more people under them, they got more of a cut of the money. The drawback is some of these guys, they got so many people under them, they couldn't keep track of them, right? So in a business, you wouldn't have one supervisor in charge of 30 individuals. You would have one supervisor in charge, like five to 10, maybe those five to 10, would be tra- right? Right. The span of control. Exactly. Right. Span of control. So that, so some of those guys were learning very quickly. There's a reason you're supposed to have that hierarchy. There's a reason they're supposed to be a high, a low, a five-star, four-star. These are other rank structures. Like You're supposed to have that because it mimics how successful businesses work because of that. Because you don't have 30 individuals calling you all the time about, let me get bail money. 
you know, they caught me with a gun. I got beef with this guy or that guy. Like, and, and what's interesting is when you're building rapport and you're talking to guys, you can kind of commiserate like, yeah, you know, like the running joke sometimes with gang members, like as we see each other through our careers, I used to always joke, like if I knew that gang and their rank structure, I would joke about that. Like when they would see me and be like, oh, you in a suit now. You know, I said, yeah, I'm that three star, right? Joking around like my rank is the equivalent of what you have in your rank. And that shows I'm showing you respect. And we would laugh and joke like that. And I would, I would tell them like, you know, you'll see me one day in about 15 years, I'm going to be that high. I'll be running everything. And they laugh and joke about, no, nah, I don't want that. I, I'm good where I am. You know, I don't want to have to be in charge of the whole gang or the whole set. So it's just running like these jokes back and forth and playing around, but also checking one another too. Like, oh, because if, if that person would have come back and told me something different, maybe they would have been like, yeah, I don't want to be like so-and-so because he's running the set into the ground. You know, like you, you start to get kind of feedback on management styles and how people are running the gang and like, oh, okay, yeah. It's the same, just like you said in business, uh, the gang world is the same. Like an aggressive supervisor who leads through fear is usually not as successful as the charismatic one who can like motivate and inspire others. So that's where you see a lot of gangs that like uh, gangster disciples a lot of times have a very cleaned up image. You know, like they don't want people necessarily to think that they are these gang members or that they're so negative. Like they're, they, they're trying to to um, put across an image of like being about the community. And so like for us in the South, they will actually come in and do trash pickups and do charity work and, and give out Christmas gifts and stuff. And even tell people like, look, that gang over there, they're moving negatively. Like they're causing the problems in your, in your neighborhood. We are not the problem. We're trying to help. Right. But also know that those guys can put somebody in the ground very quickly, you know, so it's this idea, too, that every gang operates differently. And so dealing with somebody who's in a gangster disciple chapter is much different than dealing with East Coast blood who's, you know, G-Shine blood or Sex Money Murder or Nine Trey or something, and different than dealing with Latin King or Vice Lord or Sorenio or Norteño or, what you know, MS-13 or 18th Street. Like, each gang has their own kind of culture, you know, like, a, like their own um mores and and how they operate so some so some gang members are like very respectful like yes officer no officer you know like, wow that's different you're a gang member they're like no I'm, I'm part of a nation you know or i'm part of move, a movement i'm not a gang I'm, I'm not part of a gang and so semantics come into play where a lot of officers get mad and they're like you're a gang member just admit it and they're like no i'm not i'm part of growth and development stop calling me a gang member you know so it's this idea of Meet people where they're at. If, if I'm talking to an individual and they tell me I'm part of growth and development, okay, well then, hey, I'm going to say you're part of growth and development. Like, I'm not going to stand here and argue, you know, but you and I both know that maybe you're part of a shooting investigation or, or some type of violence. Like, well, maybe some of the members in, in, your, in your movement are becoming violent or that sort of thing. Because there are people I have met that are part of, of, of a gang or a nation or however you want to term it. And they buy into, hey, we're here for the community. And they don't expo get exposed a lot of times to the violence until they do. And then it's like, oh, wow, this is an eye-opener. You know, like I, we were told one thing about this group, but now we're, we're finding out it's different. Things are completely different. So that's kind of the sad thing is like when you see a gang member recognize in their own life they've been duped or manipulated to join a set. And then within that set, they've done things that they're not proud of.
But then they realize like, oh, this is all about personal gain for these higher ups and not the community the way the way I was told, you know, or that sort of thing. So a lot of gangs operate differently like that. And they're very smart about um, public relations and trying to clean up the image and, and put that out there that they're about the community. But sadly, a lot of times it gets back to the, the violence and drug sales that, that contribute to human trafficking and a lot of other things. Yeah. Cause it is all at the end of the day, it is all tied together, right? You're, your, your shoplifts, uh, so that you can buy the drugs. Um, somebody is trafficking in those drugs. Uh, you might need to sell yourself or sell your girl for those drugs. I mean, it's, it is all, uh, at the end of the day, uh, uh, it, there it's a web, right? It's all kind of interconnected in yeah. there. Um, yeah. if it, uh, if it is not clear to anybody over the last, uh, hour and 45 minutes or so, you, you clearly are a, a so what I would refer to as a subject matter expert in the gang world. If somebody hasn't bestowed that title upon you, uh, bippity boppity boop, <laughs> I'm now calling you an SME in gangs, uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, thank you. I, I wanted to kind of use that and pivot, uh, into, mm-hmm. uh, uh, your writing. You, you, you did mention uh, mm-hmm. a little bit ago, uh, that, you know, 10 years from now or whatever, uh, you'll be in a different place and you'll be writing, you know, it'll be, it'll be your books that we're reading, uh, you know, your, your fiction and nonfiction books and, and we'll all be sitting here. I'll be, I'll be asking people, what books are you reading? They'll be like, I'm reading BC Sanders. I'm like, I know that dude. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but, uh, yeah. but it seems to have all, I, I don't know if I'd say, cause I don't truly know your background, but it's all sort of started, um, or at least you've, you've been spurred on, uh, by writing for skill set magazine. Um, yeah. T- tell us about, uh, y- what you write, uh, for skill set and, and kind of how that came to fruition. And if you're not writing about gangs for skill set magazine, might I offer a suggestion? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the, the funny thing is, uh, when skill set started and so skill set is a, is a magazine that it just kind of encompasses all different types of lifestyles and topics. So it's not like a gun magazine. It's not um, history magazine. It's what it's just, man, you can get an article and an issue that goes from, you know, uh, break dancing to the world's biggest skateboard collection to mercenaries of the eighties to historical badasses, which is what uh, I usually write about. Like, it's got so many different times and a lot of humor too, like large sections of humor in there and quizzes, pop culture quizzes, it's got everything. So when it started, which was uh, now five, about five years ago, I think, um, I knew some people that had started the magazine just through previous, uh, business, uh, ventures and stuff. So when the magazine started, I'd pitched, Hey, I, I like to read. I, that's all I do is read, but I read about all these, you know, historical characters that were real people that did a lot of really amazing things but the more i talk about the books at work the more i realize nobody's reading about these people <laughs> whatever so anyway you know you pitch the idea and they liked it and they're like yeah you know run with it so i started writing a lot of the just historical articles like that um based off of units or individuals within law enforcement um or military background that have just done you know, extraordinary things that to me, I think people should read about. And it had you know nothing to do with gangs or anything like that. I've never uh, written anything for the magazine um, other than police historically, but I've never written like uh, about gangs or subcultures like skinhead subcultures and stuff like that, or 
you know, different backgrounds of other stuff that I've got going on. I just used it as a way for me to decompress and do something that I really enjoy. And I always knew that I wanted to eventually write. Um, and, and some of my original goals were to write nonfiction works based on investigations other people did, not necessarily the stuff that I've done um, or other things like that, that that draw my interest. However, I've, I've kind of evolved into writing fiction. And so now I'm in the maybe the final stages of um, finishing up a novel I'm working on. And I've got an idea of about six novels in fiction. But that if you read the book, um, you're actually, it's like literature. So you're going to learn stuff. It's got symbolism and all that. But also you get to learn about subcultures. So like, you know, eventually when I'm writing about gangs and cop work and all that stuff in fiction, you or like if you're reading it from a cop's perspective, you're like, that's dead on. That's, that's as accurate like as The Wire was or something. And if you're a gang member and you read it, you're like, yeah, he knows what he's talking about. Or sadly, if you're a grandmother of a gang member, you know, you're like, yeah, I can relate to that character because I've been through that. So eventually that'll all take off. And that's, you know, I've just met people from writing for Skillset who were in, you know, the publishing world and that sort of thing. So hopefully all that comes to fruition. Um, but, but for Skillset, it's, it's mostly historical uh, articles of just about these badass individuals, man, that did stuff that are so impressive to me. Like the current issue right now uh, was on a Norwegian unit that went in and, and basically infiltrated into a facility that was making hard water, which was basically or heavy water, which was basically the element used to develop an atomic bomb. And so Hitler was designing this or his people were designing this. The Allied forces found out. They sent in this team, a very small team of badasses that were from that area, uh, Norwegian background, and they sneak into the facility, blow up the room, and the whole the rest of the facility is intact because they didn't want to kill civilians. I mean, it's just stuff like it's amazing. Like uh, the whole idea of how they had to live in in the the you know winter for three or four months to survive blizzards in order to be there to do the insertion. It's just it's crazy. So then when I'm having a bad day and I go, well, you know. So what I'm having a bad day because I'm, be I'm working 36 hours. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, you know, I'm not part of this team that's freezing and, you know, knowing that the fate of potentially the world rests on them being successful. Or um, I've, I've written about female spies in the OSS and the SOE during World War II. So when I'm talking to people and I'm like, yeah, you know, there were these women that were, were part of, you know, spy networks in World War II. And people are always like, oh, yeah, yeah, they – they seduced like Nazis and got sick. I'm like, no, man, I'm talking about they parachute into a country, build a resistance network and blow up railroad tracks, you know, and, and shoot Nazis and throw fragmentation grenades. Like, like I'm talking about people that are putting in work that, you know, eventually got out of that after World War II and they had to keep these things secret in case another bro- a war broke out. They could go right back to doing what they were doing and the enemy would always assume, oh, your spies are only males. They're not females that are like, they're just bad badasses so the magazine allowed me to write articles like that so i've been doing it now for a couple of years and they're great people um they're always trying to to help other people out and stuff so i've always been supportive of them and i appreciate them even giving me the chance to to write those articles and really for me to be able to do something other than just police work and something that's a little more positive in my life nice yeah i like it i uh I've talked to a handful of people who have, uh, you know, been involved with skill set in some fashion or another. Uh, definitely check them out on 
on social media. How do people uh, go about um, uh, finding you on social media? What, uh, what, what can they look for? Yeah, so uh, the only platform I'm on is Instagram, and I've only been on there for maybe like two years. Um, it's just social media wasn't my thing, obviously, because of work. But uh, So my account is just B, as in Bravo, period. C, as in Charles, period, Sanders. So it's just BC Sanders. Um, so and, and usually I'll post silly stuff on there, like childhood photos, or I post a lot of stuff about music just because uh, I message a lot of people about music um, or books that I like to read. So a lot of people have asked me, hey, will you post more stuff about gang knowledge or whatever? So I'll test the waters and see. You know, I've, I've got plenty of information. We'll see if, if people like it, if they want to, you know, uh, check that stuff out. If there are people that are listening and they're like, hey, I want to learn more about gang information or even you're not getting a lot of support in your area or jurisdiction – I've got people, I've done other podcasts as a guest and people sent me photos of graffiti or information. They're like, Hey, look, I know I've got gangs here. Nobody's helping me out. What does this mean? If I don't know, I'll tell you, I don't know. I'll try to find your resource in your area that, that can help you. But uh, with that being said, like if I tell you something, it's because I know it because of the background, not, I'm never going to just tell someone something stupid and worry about my ego and be like, Oh, well, at least I, at least I said something. It's like, no, I'm going to give you, accurate information or I'll try to get you plugged in with someone who does in your area. Cause there are a lot of people that I'm learning, you know, just through Instagram that are doing really good work and they're just kind of left to uh, alone, you know, by their jurisdiction, they're seeing this problem arise and, and nobody wants to help them out with it, which is sad because I can see their future. Like it's only going to get worse if you don't address it. I mm-hmm. mean, so yeah, but so for Instagram, it's like, I, I try to keep it light and try to keep it funny. Um, I'll post stuff on there. Uh, on Wednesday nights, I do a podcast with Jason Piccolo. Um, he he does a protectors podcast, but on Wednesdays we do one that's uh, protagonist antagonist. It's just a PA podcast. All we do is talk about movies. We bring guests on. They pick their favorite movie. We talk about the movie, but also if they're into whatever they're into, we talk about that sometimes as well. So um, I do that too, just something to to kind of break up the stress of, of homicide, gang work, all that stuff. Right. Right. You do need your hobbies, right? We can't just, we can't just eat. You <laughs> yeah. can't just eat your badge 24 seven. It's, uh, right. it's, yeah. it's frowned upon nowadays. Um, yeah. Uh, which is a whole nother two hour conversation that I'm sure we can get into. Uh, I, yeah. I do, uh, uh, I am intrigued that, uh, that your, uh, your novel's almost done here. Your, your first of, uh, of six novels here. I'm, I'm looking forward to it, uh, to diving into those. So when you get those published, uh, let me know so I can, uh, I can buy one and fangirl over it and have you, uh, have you autograph <laughs> it. And I'll, yeah. I'll just like randomly show up at a local bookstore in your area and be like, BC, yeah. BC, it's me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, look, if I send you, if I send you some samples, you have to read it and then, with a red ink pen, just rip it apart. Like I, I, I have people that have read some samples and I'll tell them I need your feedback. And they're like, Oh yeah, it was great. I'm like, no, 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 no. I legit. Cause you're a reader. So you understand like what right. I'm saying is like, like if I'm r- writing something, I need real feedback. And so then when people understand that they feel more comfortable, it's like, okay, good. I assume the reader would understand this, but no, they don't. Or, Hey, yeah, this is, this is good here, but change this or whatever. So mm-hmm. I try not, I try not to do it too much, but, but I also know that writing fiction is like, I know what I like. And then I know there are a lot of other people that want, you know, want more of something in it. So it, it may be lacking. 
um, for that or whatever. So that's the main thing. It it's going to happen eventually. I just don't know um, how soon or publishing and all that stuff. Yeah. But it, I mean, one way or another, I'm gonna make it happen. I like it, man. I like it. I'm a I'm a, a fan of anybody who's uh, who's who's an author because uh, it gives me more gives me more stuff to read and you know those late nights <laughs> are curled up in bed and whatnot. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I do uh, I do wish you the best of luck there with uh, with your writing career and uh, and with your current work as well. And uh, and wanted to thank you for coming on the show. Before I let you leave, though, um, I do need to uh, to ask you one final question, and it is okay. that uh, that you've got a microphone to the world. What should the world hear from BC Sanders? Just be kind. Like everybody out there, just be kind, be nice to other people. Like flat out, especially if you're a cop, you're going to encounter people on their worst day. Remember that. Block your emotions, compartmentalize stuff, be as nice as you can to people, no matter what. And even if you get into a use of force and, you know, someone's feeling elbows and knee strikes and whatever, and you get them into custody, check, check your emotions and tell them why they did what they did and how it happened and just try to try to keep that that rapport between two human beings so it doesn't escalate i mean seriously that's right now that's what i see a lot of negativity out there and people feeding on it just be positive push push people in a positive way and just be kind to other people supportive that's the main thing I like it, man. Be positive, be kind to other people. It's uh, uh, just a, it's a consistent message across the board with the guests on on the Modern Cop podcast, and uh, and that's again that's sort of the the whole reason that I created the podcast was just to push that image out there that hey, this is we're real people with real feelings, and uh, uh, you know, don't don't give us a reason to uh, remain employed. I guess is kind of a funny way of uh, of saying yeah. it. So. Um, yeah. But uh, with that, man, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, everybody listening, go ahead and find uh, BC Sanders on Instagram. And if you're in law enforcement, if you got questions, uh, I'm sure he's uh, more than happy to to help you out and check out his articles on uh, on Skillset Magazine. With that, hope you all stay safe, and I'll see you on the road. 